This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My guest today is Tony Blauer. He has decades of experience training in the martial arts, combatives, defensive tactics, and training with the highest tier units in the special operations community. He has a wealth of knowledge, had a great time talking to him. And now, without further ado, Tony Blauer. What's up, man? How's it going? It's going. Oh, man, good to see you. I mean, last time I saw you... Well, in person was uh, was out here hey. in Park City, Deer Valley. It's been a, yeah. that was like two years though, isn't it? Been a year and a half, something like that. Yeah, well over a year. Well yeah. Over a year. Oh man, good to see. I wish we could do it in person, but uh, not quite set up for that yet. Getting there, getting closer. You know, I, I mean, I, I I saw that uh, picture you posted, and it looks badass. I might uh, I might just work security at your place. I'll just get <laughs> it up there, just guarding the the, the studio. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, I'm putting a couple of things in place, security elements in place up here. You know, but it's, uh, you know, it's just in case. Just in case, be prepared. Be prepared. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I dig it, man. I, I don't have my my uh, my tomahawks in my other office. And <laughs> so I hope they won't get attacked during the podcast because my my situational awareness is is obviously you know uh, been uh, compromised right now. I but, hear uh, you. No, I get it. Excited. I, oh man, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. And uh, like I, I mean. Why I like this podcast is because it forces us to uh, put the phones down, be off the computers for an hour, hour and a half, two hours, whatever it is. And we get to just hang out and and talk for a little bit. So very few opportunities for that these days with everyone connected. And even if you make a conscious decision to do it, well, guess what? The person that you're having lunch with or uh, hanging out with, having a beer with, whatever it might be, well, maybe they might be connected because they have to be because something's coming yeah. in and they got to be going to get whatever it is. But this is so cool because we get to do this and, uh, and, and put those things down and just hang out for a bit. Yeah, no, I, I, I dig it. And I just actually, yesterday I went to Verizon. I always had a backup phone, um, uh, just in case, you know, I travel so much that, you know, the, you break your phone, the battery dies, it gets stolen. I always had a backup phone and I went and I, I got a new one yesterday and zero apps on it. And, uh, and that's going to be the phone that I have with me. Cause it's just so easy to get sucked into so easy. Instagram and, and LinkedIn and Twitter and all of that. And I, and I've got, you know, pretty good self-awareness that I hear myself yelling at myself going, what are you doing? Get off this shit. Right? I know. It's like, you gotta put it down, but getting rid of it is, is going to be nice. And, and just, unplugging as you're alluding to there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to figure that out, out too, you know, always, always adapting. It's an important in life in general, but I think what I'm going to do is just plug the phone in, uh, upstairs in a room and pretend like it's 1985 and there's a cord uh, attached to it and it's attached uh, to this thing on the wall. Um, and that's uh, the place that I can go and do Instagram and Twitter and all that stuff. And then that's the phone I just leave there and then have another one, which I, I have, um, well, that doesn't have that stuff on it so that I can't uh, get sucked phone. in. Yeah. yeah. Only a few people have that number. Exactly. Yeah, that, was, that was the other one is like only a handful of people had that phone number. And so if it was really an emergency, you knew to call that secondary number. Exactly. So I think I got, yeah, I got to adapt and figure things out, but I think that's going to be probably the way to, for, for me to do it going forward here. This is my year to get organized. Uh, and then, uh, it, 
it's too late to save 2022 from mass chaos, but, uh, by 2023, some more systems will be in place some more processes to make things more effective and efficient as far as being able to, to, uh, section off time for writing and, and, uh, do all those things, family and all the rest of it. So still chaotic right now, but, uh, putting some things in place that will allow 2023. Um, even if there are more projects, to be able to have those segmented in a way that makes more sense uh, for efficiency's sake. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm are, working on. Are, are you using any, just uh, entrepreneur to entrepreneur, are you using any uh, uh, platforms to help you manage your thoughts, your tasks, your, uh, you, you know, are you, writing shit by hand combination. I have a whiteboard upstairs, but it was in storage for the last like two and a half years. So I just pulled that thing out of, out of storage. I'm like, Oh, look what I was doing two and a half years ago. That was on the board. I should probably get back to a couple of those things. Yeah. Um, no, what helps me is having a separate computer and I have a separate computer that is only for writing and okay. it is only connected to the internet just for the updates. Cause you have to have the updates going otherwise it wouldn't even be connected. But, uh, so it's connected for that. And every now and again, I'll, I'll pull up, uh, you know, Safari or whatever to do a quick little research thing for, for the story and then get back to it. But there's no email, there's no messaging, there's no FaceTime, there's nothing else on that. I don't have to wade through other folders that are, have other things to do with the, the business or the podcast or whatever else is going on merchandise. No, none of that is distracting on there at all. None of that is wasting any of my time or taking any bandwidth. It's just the story. It's just book six. Um, so I've done that for the last three books. Um, and I find that to be very helpful, but, um, no, I'm not using any, any software that helps me manage that stuff. I'm just trying to stay like one more app. I think I'm going to lose my mind. Um, uh, even if it's supposed to be there to help me, uh, organize things, I just, I, yeah, I, uh, I have certain apps that I know are going to be, uh, that are important for engagement wise, obviously Twitter and Instagram, uh, specifically, but, uh, and that's, and I, and I love them and that I get to say thank you to people who have read the book and reach out. Um, but there are so many other negatives that are attached to doing that, but I still, I still want to do it because I'm so thankful for everyone who allows me to do what I love doing. So I still do it. Your, 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 your story is amazing and inspiring and, and just, uh, you know, what you've done aside from the obvious, thank you for your service and everything else, but just the, that you've always wanted to be a writer and then you got out and did that and then crazy shit's happening. And (laughs) as you know, my, my wife stole uh, the gift you sent the the, the shirt and was wearing it around with her bra and, uh, and, 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 and crazy just binge terminal list. And, uh, so excited, uh, so excited for you. And, and hopefully there's no reason why, you know, it, it, it shouldn't continue and continue. So it's, it was like an eight hour movie. No, great. I appreciate that. Appreciate that. Yeah, we'll see. I'm hopeful, but we'll see. Um, but yeah, I'm in the middle of book six right now. So, uh, next week, and one thing I do also to help, um, it's not an app, it's a cabin. And, uh, so I rent a little Airbnb cabin, um, that's not too far away, but far enough away where right. I can just constantly write without interruption. Um, and, uh, just go as late as I can possibly go and then wake up and then start right away. And there's nothing else that I do except right there. Um, so I'm about to, I'm about to disappear into that and I'll still do social media engagement and all that, that stuff in the, in the mornings, but then put that aside and it's just right. So, uh, so I do, I do do that, but, uh, yeah, it's busy times, busy times for you too. I've seen you all over the place. You're doing your, doing your thing. And uh, are you in the garage right now? Is this the, is this the garage gym? Yeah, this is the garage gym. And I was, I was, I was telling your team earlier before you logged in, 
Uh, I've got a, a nice air-conditioned office with a with a gorgeous hand-painted uh, American flag and my fuck beer uh, logo. Mm-hmm. I didn't know where where to where to do it. I and and I wanted, you know, for most of your audience who probably have no clue who I am. Uh, this is kind of like a where the hell is this guy and it becomes a hockey <laughs> piece because what we do is so important. In fact, I was having a meeting this morning with one of my team over in the Netherlands, which is just an epicenter of a shit show with with a bunch of things going on with the farmers and 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 uh, their politicians and and whatever. Oh, wow. And and he's got a a, a big. Uh, CrossFit gym, Wing Chun, kickboxing, and he teaches the spear system in our program there. And we were just talking about how he's lost a lot of members in the last couple of years. And uh, and, and I and I said to him because you know I mentor him on a, as a friend and, and as a, you know on a business level. I said, look, if somebody moved, you can't do anything about that. If somebody lost their job and have the money, you can't do anything about that except maybe give them a scholarship, let them train for free. Um, if people don't like you anymore or don't see value in what you do, there's nothing you can do with that. But I said, if, if, if it's the oppression because of the weaponization of fear mm. over the last couple of years, I said, we can do something about that. People, uh, people need to feel dangerous again, self-reliant again, that if shit comes to them, they need to, they need to be able to manifest the courage. And I was like, I've got so many different shirts. I'm going, what shirt am I going to wear? And so I picked my choose courage shirt because fear is contagious, but so is courage. And, 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 and you know, this better than anybody, you know, being in, in, in your prior life, watching how that, 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 that courage and everyone was courageous back, back then, but the moments of doubt and hesitation change you, the guy in front of you, beside you goes, and there's just a look or, or, or a little squeeze on the shoulder. And you just know, okay, we got this, we're going to do this. And there's a way to do that psychologically for people. And people need that more than ever. Cause either the, the uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but is this the stupidest time in the history of our civilization combined with the most corrupt time in our civilization it's just insane the stuff that i read and see and there's zero critical thinking and anyways i'm off on a tangent no it certainly uh, seems like that in our lifetime anyway um yeah. and uh i mean it is and when you talk about fear being contagious yes courage being contagious yes uh and then now you have these other means though to spread well both of those but uh it seems for whatever reason that that uh, that fear online uh, virtually uh, seems to be more contagious because these platforms, the ones we just talked about earlier, seem to lend themselves more for that, or perhaps those are what we're seeing more algorithm in the algorithms um, because that gets your attention. And it used to just be for profit. I think at the beginning of all this, um, you know, I tend to look on the bright side of things as much as I possibly can and look for the positive. But I I, I tend to think that a lot of these companies were started uh, on, on some of these um, mission statements of bringing people together and on all this sort of thing. And then, okay, profits. And now we have, we have employees. Okay. God, we have to pay for these things and boom, boom, boom. And they grow and grow and grow. And now they've turned into these things that not just, they don't just control behaviors, meaning advertisements, um, but thoughts as well. So yeah. they've really grew into almost the opposite of what they were intended at the beginning. Uh, and instead of bringing people together, most all of them seem to drive people apart. And the way they do drive people together really is with that, 
contagious fear that you talked about, because for whatever reason, that seems to be what spreads virtually faster than anything else. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, I mean, there's a part of our, 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 our physiology, uh, you know, the whole amygdala survival system, the, again, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the bottom tier is survival procreation. I think there's a part of us that at an unconscious level wants to know there's a tomorrow and that things will be okay. And, uh, and so if I said to you, you know, and, 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 you know, you're a unicorn for this because of your training and the adversity and, and, and what, but if you were just the average person and I said, guess what, tomorrow's going to be 70 degrees, there's going to be no traffic, everything's going to go well and everything's fine. You'd go, okay, thanks. And you'd go on with it. But if I said, oh, by the way, around two o'clock, this shit might happen you'd immediately go, what? Like there's something about the way most humans are wired and, and, and it may be, you know, like, like, uh, uh, like hypothetically just because of our evolution where everything was fine, but in a moment we, there can be a saber tooth tiger there or an avalanche or, or a volcano erupts. Mm -hmm. And so anything that challenged our sense of safety and survival gets our attention way faster than, than, uh, you know, I go, Hey, you're going to win a lottery tomorrow. Yeah. Not me. I don't like, you know, but if I go, Hey, tomorrow, someone's going to come to your house and try and kill you. You'd be like, what, what are you talking about? Like, tell me more. Are mm -hmm. you serious? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. No, I mean, for most of human history, that's how it was. That's why for people that brush some of this stuff off as uh frivolous or uh paranoia or whatever it, it might be. Um, well, you only have the option of really even having that opinion is because you had ancestors that were good at fighting. Uh, right. and, good at, and good at hunting. Um, and because they did have pay attention when those, and that sixth sense uh, went off. I mean, there's, that is such a, there's a real thing, uh, sixth sense. And an old army special forces sniper from Vietnam used to uh, put it this way and tell me, uh, if it just doesn't look right, and meaning if it just doesn't look right, just doesn't feel right, um, it's probably not pay attention to that because your ancestors sure did. And that's why you're here. Um, today, yeah. Yeah, 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 you could stumble probably through life and, and not pay attention to that. And you might come out fine on the other, on the other side, whatever's on the other side. Um, but for most of human history, that was not the case. If you stumbled around, guess what? You were going to be eaten or killed. Uh, and that's yeah. just how it was. So only for this very slim portion of human history, have we had the option of, uh, of not having to be good at the things that, uh, that you teach. Um, and I want to go back to, I want to go with some background because I realized that I, I don't know if I, I know how all this started for you. Um, I know where you are now and I know your, uh, connection to SEAL teams and special operations and, um, all these, uh, other training that you did during the eighties and nineties and during the evolution of, uh, of martial arts from more traditionally based styles into adapting to a, a changing environment, essentially, um, taking what's useful, discarding what's useless, uh, Jeet Kune Do, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, all these things are coming in. Um, and UFC, obviously MMA, I mean, you've been around for, uh, I mean, really some seminal moments in, uh, uh, the history of, uh, martial arts, fighting arts, uh, in general, uh, where did that all, all start for you? Uh, crazy. Yeah. So I don't know if you got enough, uh, um, battery power and, and, and if zoom can record this long, cause that's how old I am. If I, if I told <laughs> you the story, I'll try to do the reader's digest. Uh, <laughs> I was but, trying uh, not to frame it that way. I just, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tony's so old, but let's be careful how his hearing his hearing is still good. Uh, the you know it's so funny because I have so many 
there were so many events that are like, like almost like micro origin stories that put me on the path, uh, you know, that I'm on. And, and one story that I, that I hope to share with you is, uh, and with your audience, particularly because of, of the, uh, the service that, that, you know, you were involved with was a huge moment in epiphany for me down in Coronado. And I'll, I'll kind of back up and fast forward to that, but uh, I grew up in the sixties. So I'm 62 years old right now. And I grew up in the sixties and I was afraid of my shadow. I was a really good athlete. I could, I could play any sport as an all around athlete, but I wasn't exceptional at anything. So I was just a good, like, you know, uh, uh, generalized, pick up anything coordinated, but I always had this fear of losing, letting down the team, not performing. I had uh, a strong performance ego. Like I went, man, I'm pretty good at this. I like this. I could throw this ball. I could wrestle. I could ski. I could do, I grew up in Canada. So as a skier and, uh, but anytime I had to race, I wanted to projectile vomit. I had butterflies in my stomach. I'd be at the top of the hill, freezing like above the tree line, sweating. Like I and my and one story I tell people I was like 15 years old, uh, you know, in a high level race. And my coach comes by 15 minutes early and he says, How do you feel, kid? And I go, Great coach, just lie to him. Right. But inside I'm going, oh my God. And, and years later, when I was putting together our no fear program, uh, spelled K-N-O-W, fear, no fear, get to no fear, uh, that I realized, and it was a very potent sentence, and it was, if I'm so good, why am I so scared? Mm -hmm. If I'm so good, why am I so scared? Nobody in my, my mentorship, parenting, guardians, coaches ever said to me, hey, this is what fear does to you. This is the neurochemicals. This is khaki psyche, things go into slow motion sometimes, auditory exclusion, uh, 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 tunnel vision. These are things that happen in high stress and they're normal. And had somebody either through scenario training exposed me to that, uh, had somebody told that to me, I might've been like, you know, world-class skier or wrestler or whatever, but no one ever did. In fact, it occurred to me, I was writing an article last week, two weeks ago, where it occurred to me, I never once told my parents or my coaches, I'm fucking scared. Hmm. And, uh, and, and what I realized, you know, and this is part of the message is there's lots of things in life you need to do scared, right? And if you could admit it, that can be a superpower because it's a self-awareness thing where you just go, Okay, but I'm doing this anyhow, as opposed to it, uh, uh, consuming energy, maintaining a facade, you know, and there's a lot of people, particularly in, in the type A alpha community, that's like, fuck fear, if you're afraid, you shouldn't be here. And the coolest guys I ever met were the ones that could look me in the eyes and go, yeah, yeah, we were about to enter this building and we knew everyone's going to try and kill us. And of course, I was scared, but I was a professional. I signed up for this. I was with my team. And we did it because that was my job and I knew what I had to do. Uh, and, and so that to me is self-awareness because now what you're doing is you're turning fear into fuel. You're, you realize that if I don't move and I don't use the skill set that I was trained to, to do, then I'm again, that's where you, you stop in the fatal funnel or you're slow off the mark or you're just going through the motions, but you're not committed. Uh, and I don't want to turn this into a CQB uh, conversation. <laughs> But that, but that was me, you know, like skiing. Okay, don't wipe out. Don't catch a tip. And so I was always visualizing what I didn't want to do. 
which mm. <laughs> Murphy's law says, well, guess what? You're going to catch a tip here. You're going to do this. And uh, so that was my experience for, for years and years and years. When I was 11 years old, I was leaving a baseball game. And these two kids, Jack, uh, two kids, I was two teenagers. I'm, I'm like 12 years old. These two teenagers are walking by. I'm coming, I'm coming off the property. I'm the only kid leaving this elementary school property. And they see me and they go, hey, kid. And I'm like, oh, good. Older kids want to talk to me. And I kind of like shuffle over to them. I go, yeah. What? They go, hey, do you go to school here? I go, yeah, I do. And when are you going to high, to the high school? There's a high school up the road. And I, I said, next year. And they go, well, welcome to high school. And I'm like, thanks. And they grab me. And one of them pins me behind, like, like this behind the back. And, uh, and the other guy, he's like, he steps back and he goes, oh, dude, I'm Bob. This, so this, guy's, <laughs> yeah, this guy's pinned me like this. I'm like, oh, fuck, like doing this sort of thing. And this guy goes, well, in the high school, and remember Sugar Ray Leonard's uh, a bowl of punch on Duran, right? He goes like this. Oh, he, yeah. Everything. Oh. And I'm like, ah, I'm oh. told That's Dude, horrible. Let me tell you this. I thought I was going to die. I'd never been beaten up. I thought I was going to die. So as they were now, imagine I'm strong I'm in shape. I've been wrestling, competing in wrestling, you know, playing all sorts of sports and I'm pulling against his arms. So my abs are as, I'm going to say ironclad as possible. Mm. Right. I noticed how I slipped that in there. <laughs> uh, as, I mean, they're rock hard because I'm fighting to get out. He bolo punches. Everything goes into that super slow motion. And as I'm anticipating impact, I scream like my sister. Sorry, sis. Like a little, like a little girl afraid. Ah! And it hits me. I don't feel anything, but I screamed thinking it was going to break my ribs and kill me. Mm -hmm. I'd already projected the, my demise right there. Mm -hmm. I'm dying right here. And uh, what was interesting is this, is the guy behind me, when I screamed, I felt his grip change. Like it was never his intention to hurt me, just scare me. Mm. And I immediately, my intuition said, scream again. And I screamed again and pretended I couldn't breathe. And he let go of me. And I fell to the ground, pretending, going, <clears throat> and I could feel like this tension. And, and, and I'm like peripherally looking up. And I can see them like looking at each other, holy shit. And they run off. They take off. And as soon as they get up and they turn the corner, I get up, I fix my shirt. And I'm like, the fuck just happened? I go home and I say to my dad, Dad, I just got beaten up by two guys. I got no marks on me. My shirt's not even torn, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no, I don't have a black eye or bloody. Dad, two guys just beat the shit out of me. And he's like, like with what? A pillow? Was it a pillow fight? <laughs> and, and I'm like, no, seriously. And it was 19, it was turning 1973. He said, you've got to learn some self-defense. Let's find a martial arts school. One Taekwondo school, a few miles from my house. I, I, I go there. I fall in love with it because this idea was, oh, and this is such an interesting part in the sixties, we're all like Mannix, um, streets of San Francisco, Manchurian candidate, uh, uh, Bruce Lee, Batman, like the original black and white turning into color. Mm. And I was always fascinated by any man that could solve a problem with his fists. Mm. Huh. Natural. And so, yeah, duh. And, and uh, I'm so toxic. What can I say? And so uh, I, when I started going to Taekwondo, I was like, this is going to change my life. This, this is going to give me the personal power and the confidence that, that I've been lacking for, you know, the last 15 years or 13 years. Yeah. And um, 
So I started going and I was a fanatic. Like I literally, I trained every single day, uh, six days a week, um, trained at home, turned my basement into a Bruce Lee museum and, and bags and everything. And uh, just worked out all the time. Uh, literally, I wouldn't get out of bed. I had a, like a Mackie Warrior, you know, that striking pad. Oh, yeah. Under my bed. I'd wake up in the morning, the alarm would go off for school. I'd reach under the bed, pull it under the bed, and just start nailing it. That is so funny. I've never heard someone say that before, except me. I did the same thing. I talked about it with uh, Evan Hafer on uh, a podcast four years ago or something like that. Um, Tom Davin, who's the, the co CEO out there, he brings it up all the time. He just can't get enough of it. But I did the same thing. Uh, yeah. I put one of those pads next to my bed and when the alarm went off, I trained myself to wake up and hit yeah. it immediately. So for years, I mean, I think only recently I've started not waking up all the time doing that, but from doing that at such a formative during a formative period in my life, like that alarm up, I'm awake immediately and bam, I'm hitting, I'm hitting that pad right there. It's not, well, it's not a pad and people have hit them before, you know, it's, it's not really a pad, this canvas covered, you know, thing. Um, and, uh, and I just trained myself to do that. And I did that for years. And I so I, I would always wake up no matter where I was, alarm went off, boom, I'm like this. Like, yeah, fist is here, yeah, elbow in right next to, right next to my head I'm here, ready, ready, to, ready to strike, you're ready to go. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, but same I thing, I never heard anybody else that uh, did that. Kindred That's spirits. Funny. I love Isn't it. Isn't that funny? There we go. We should end the show right there. That was <laughs> that the, yeah. So, so I would, I would wail on that. And then when I was finished, you know, and I'd hear my sister in the other room going, stop that. Cause the floor would be rattling and whatever. And then I'd get her to bed and I'd literally before I would go even take a, take a, a, a leak, I banged out, you know, 75 pushups. I do handstand pushups and on the way and on the way to the bathroom, you know, I'd be there going, ah, you know, like throwing <laughs> kicks, walk, walk. just a complete fanatic, just a complete fanatic. And, um, loved it, loved it. Got into an altercation when I was 15 at school. Now my martial art instructor, this guy, Alex, who I revere, would tell all the students, if I catch you abusing your skill, abusing your martial arts in any way, you're out of the school. This is only for self-defense. He was super clear and we were all like scared of him and revered him. And uh, one day I'm in school uh, and uh, teacher goes out of the room. And of course, you know, 15 year olds, you know, the girls, the guys and everything. And the, the places teachers out of the room, she's down the hall, you know, like people going, you know, the, the spitballs coming out and throwing shit and chaos. And these two guys start harassing this guy, Lance. Lance was the school nerd who had the, you know, the, uh, the white tape on the big thick glasses. Mm. He was like, literally that guy, you literally, he invented that white tape, right? In the, the, the nerd tape. Um, just kidding. I don't know, but he had it, but he wasn't just a nerd that got picked on him. He was a shit disturber and instigator. I mean, it was reciprocal, right? Mm. And so these guys are going and they're harassing each other. We're all like 15 year old assholes. And I'm standing there and one of them sneaks up behind him and, uh, you know, goes down on the floor to set up the push so that he'd fall over. And uh, they do that. He falls and he falls into the teacher's like a stationary supply closet, falls in, kind of bangs his head. He's OK. But he looks up right away and I'm laughing because everyone's laughing and he thinks it was me that uh that tripped him so he goes you fucker and you can see him like getting up he's like, you motherfucker and I can, I can tell he's going after me well what do you do you're 15 it looks like somebody's about to sprint at you i'm like dude no 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 and i start i start moving 
and he chases me. And I realize, you know, like that's just this behavioral instinct. He starts chasing me to the back of the room. Now, I've been doing Taekwondo now at this point for two and a half years every fucking day. Fascinated with Bruce Lee, bagging my my, my uh, uh, um, basement, wailing on it, doing it through osmosis, intuiting Jeet Kune Do, but focused on the Taekwondo. And um, he comes running at me. And I'm like, because I, I didn't do anything, I was just laughing. Like I, I wasn't in fight mode. I was like, what the fuck's going on? And I put my hands up like this, mm-hmm. fingers blade outside 90. And I go, Lance, Lance, the fuck calm down. And he's like, and carotid coming out of it. He's embarrassed and he's angry. And he goes, he goes, you fucker, let's go, let's go. I go, dude, like, and all I can hear in my head is Alex going, you're out of the school if you abuse your skill. Like I could just hear the warning. And so, but there's a part of me that recognizes there's danger close. Mm-hmm. Right? Like this guy wants to fight and he thinks it's me and my hands are up, but I'm not in my Taekwondo stance here. There you go. I to a wall. Yeah. My hands are up and there's a part of me going, he's too close to kick. He's too close to kick. He's too close to kick. And this is a deep talk. I don't know if we'll get into it, but on this call or another call about neuroscience, myelinization of neurons and how neural patterns, not muscle memory, because there really isn't true muscle memory. Memory doesn't have the capacity to have a memory, but how neural patterns can influence your functioning situational awareness. And this is huge. If you're in a gunfight, a knife fight, a car accident, that, that a, uh, a neural pattern that likes to move a certain way can hijack your attention. And it looks to make that the solution as opposed to a, 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 a more uh, adaptive or efficient solution. Yeah. Anyways. So I'm here like this going, dude, take it easy. What do you, what, what, like, it wasn't me. He's going, let's go, let's fight. And I'm going, Lance, calm down. Right. Uh, you know, and he goes, come on. And he's getting more angry, Jack, and he's getting more angry, Jack. And I suddenly, I realized this guy's going to fucking swing. You could just, my intuition was going, here we go. My hands came up a little bit higher and I'm thinking he's too close to kick. He's too close to kick. He's too far to knee. It was like this dead space here where I didn't know anything. And then all of a sudden he goes, come on, you fucking pussy. I'll let you have the first. And he's about to say punch. And I'm standing there like this. And as he says punch, I hit him on the, the letter U in the word punch. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't a good striker. It was like a shitty, uh, like a like a panic jab. Because you've been doing a lot of this at Taekwondo probably. Yeah, just, just straight, like just reverse punches yeah. and back fists. But I was, but I never practiced. So now, like my students now and my team were taught, how do you explode dynamically from nonviolent postures? So that if I'm talking to somebody like this, mm. how does that become a strong punch or from here moving? And how does that become the palm strike of the movement? Because we don't have the luxury. This is a neural pattern thing that, that a lot of people go, I don't want any trouble. And then they go, come on, man, I don't want to fight. And they betray the element of surprise by subtly getting ready and adopting in body language, percent of communication. Anyways, um, I throw this shitty punch, but as I hit Lance, his overhand has already started. So he was about to sucker punch me. And it was just this perfect timing. And what happens is the punch comes, it hits him. And as my hand's coming back, I see this flurry of movement and my flinch response kicks in and I go, fuck, and my hands come up and his forearm hits my forearm. And I told you earlier, I'd wrestled a lot. So I'm like, shit, and my hands come up in what's now we call like the biological airbag, the spear starts up 
and he lands up in like literally like a bottom here. Like I'm like fuck, and I'm doing this here, and I grab his head right there, Jack. I'm like this, and I pull him in. I just hip throw him on the ground because it just segued perfectly into a throw because of the angle and the way we fell. But it was the flinch that stopped me from getting sucker punch. He falls to the ground. And he's on, I'm still holding him. I grab his jaw and his hair and I freak and I whip him into a desk, stunning him like he's on the ground. And then when he's on the ground, I finally hit this like fighting stance and I scream at 15. Like, I don't even know. This is like, like, like 10 years of fear coming out of me. I went, if you get up, I'll fucking kill you. Right. And you're just sitting there like this and everyone in the class is like, holy shit. Uh, and um, and I, I make the joke after I go. The only time I was in a fighting stance was when the fight was over. Yeah, <laughs> when I was right. down there, like looking like Elvis at the end of a, <laughs> a, a song, right? Doing. You know. uh-huh. But it was a fascinating event because what I did afterwards, and this is neat, I immediately um, said, "Oh my God, I got to learn how to box because my striking was horrible." Mm-hmm. What was fascinating, and again, like a decade later, when I I remembered this fight again, I went. I used a nonviolent posture. My body's physiology bypassed my executive function and saved me because in action versus reaction, if, if, you know, if you've got your hand on a gun and I got a gun out, you need to hope for a malfunction, right? Or I'm a shitty shot because action's faster than reaction. So he was starting his punch by fluke. I threw mine early, uh, but had I tried to do wax on wax off and of course Karate Kid hadn't released yet, but had I tried to do something like that, I, I'd have been late. And what I discovered, I didn't realize it at the, then was that my body's startle flinch is what saved my face. And then that became the bridge to another skill set. That's one of the lines we say, you know, in the system, all fights are dangerous, but the most dangerous fight is an ambush. The ambush hijacks executive function, bypasses cognition, your reactive brain kicks in, we push away danger, we cover the head. Mm. If you weaponize the startle flinch, it's like having like the, the power of an airbag in a car we all have that hardwired. And what's cool about our airbag is for the car airbag to save you from impact, you need to be hit. But if I, if you and I have an argument and I stand up quick, your hands would come off the desk. So the power of a biological airbag is it starts to lock and load and get ready to deploy in anticipation of impact. Mm. That's genius, right? So I figured, so in the 80s, I started, I was doing these experiments and I was like, Holy shit. And that became, you know, one of my missions is how do you weaponize the start of Lynch? And how do we, you know, we, you talked about earlier that, uh, 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 I forget, I forget how you phrased it, but just a short slice of history where we haven't had to worry about predators and stuff like that. Like, or we, uh, we've thought that we haven't had to, you do, (laughs) but (laughs) where you could, yeah, uh, essentially stumble through life and maybe make it exactly well that (laughs) domestication which is only really the last 100 years or so because before that you needed to know okay these mushrooms get me high these kill me Uh, i'm just gonna starve i gotta learn how to uh you know uh, trap a rabbit and eat it and 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 skin it right Mm -hmm. it wasn't that long ago that people understood how to hunt and gather and, and stuff like that and so we've all been domesticated most of us have been domesticated and we 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 allow the government to go, is it okay to eat? Is it okay to, to, to do this now? What should we do next? Yep. But, but like tying this back, like into the story is that part of our survival system, 
I realized that when you train any type of martial art, you unintentionally bypass exploring that. Mm. And that became my martial art journey. Uh, and again, like that was when I was 15. I didn't figure that out. That fight happened when I was 15. I didn't figure this out. I didn't, I didn't leave there going, oh my God, startle flinch conversion. Uh, <laughs> an acronym. Yeah. That in, in, in fact, um, I went into boxing and it was this interesting thing that for all of your listeners that are into martial arts and combatives and defensive tactics, I thought that if I focused on tool development, it would make me safer, more confident, and it didn't. I realized that that uh, the mind navigates the body, and if you can't manage your fear, you're going to have trouble managing the fight. Mm. You can't get into that flow state. So I had uh, several other altercations as I got older where you know I was like, holy shit, I don't even remember what just happened there, or rec- remembering how scared I was as opposed to focus and stuff like that. That was very frustrating to me. And then when I was 20, I began teaching professionally. It was 1980. And I was obsessed with helping my students not experience what I was uh, experiencing. Um, one of my students in 1980 got his ass kicked. And I was teaching him how to box, how to wrestle, and how to kick. So it was like it was like uh, 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 an improvised, uh, organic bastardization of what MMA mm-hmm. was. And there were lots of people doing that in the Kempo world, guys in Hawaii, other people were, were Bruce Lee was already, you know, had already mm-hmm. been doing that. Uh, and of course he passed away in 73, but it was like this blending. So I was doing this, my student gets his ass kicked and, and you, you'll love this if you, if you haven't heard this, but he comes from, I'm only doing private lessons and he, I show up to private lesson. He's fucking furious, man. And I go, what happened? And so this fight, this, this bully situation that had started three months earlier when he's 15 years old, um, escalated and I'd been teaching him private lessons every week for three months. And uh, it had never been physical. It had always been verbal abuse. And I told him, because I'm a good person, I go, hey, we're nothing retroactive. He hasn't put his hand on you. School won't do anything. Uh, but if he touches you, your dad's paying me to make sure you don't go to the hospital. So you're not going to start the fight, but you'll end the fight if he puts his hand on you. Just ignore him till, for, for now. So here's the day where shit got physical. Uh, they got together. The guy shoves him. And my student Mitchell, in an emotional reaction, grabs him, single arm grab, and shoves him against a locker bank and says, never put your hands on me again. Just like that, that fuck you, you know, that back and forth things that that teenagers do. Uh, And he's holding him like this, and Mitchell's telling me, so I grabbed him, and I assert myself, and I slammed him against the locker bank, and I said, never touch, because the guy had shoved him. And I said, and then what happened? He said, he dropped me with a left hook. And I'm like, Mitchell. Why didn't you slip or bob or check or do any of the stuff that we taught that I taught you? And he looks at me, Jack, and he goes, well, I was holding his shirt and I had my books in my other hand. And I was in that moment. I was 20 years old. I always make this joke, but it wasn't a joke. It was like the God of self-defense hit me with a lightning bolt. And I said, oh, my God, we teach self-defense wrong. What we've been, I don't know if you're familiar with the 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 uh, the difference between brain-based training and block-based training. Mm-mm. You heard those terms? No. So, so brain-based training is more of a deep practice, Socratic understanding why we're doing things. Mm. And then once we understand, uh, uh, do you remember, did you get exposed to any, any uh, terminology called outcomes-based training? Yeah. While you're in the oh, yeah. So that was actually inspired by asymmetric warfare. Mm. Uh, and that was, I can say this now because they've disbanded, that was based on 
research I brought to them early on, where I would just say the scenario always dictates force must parallel danger. The bad guy controls the fight. And nobody liked to hear that last one. Yeah. They go, no, no, we control it. We control the terrain. We go, I go, no, you don't. When you go somewhere because there's a hostage, there's a bad guy, there's good intel, that location is controlled by the bad guy, for better or worse, because you're going there. You're not calling up bad guys and saying, come here to home field advantage. So the bad guy controls that. And they go, okay, we got you. Okay, that's okay. Um, now, the bad guy controls the fight. The bad guy controls the location. The bad guy controls the level of violence. No, we do. No, if you walk into the room and I shoot somebody and then I drop my gun and we're in a public area in the modern world, I'm a no-shoot by training standards. And they're like, oh. Now, if I reach for my gun, things have just changed. If I'm in the middle of shooting or killing or, or I've got the ability to inflict this damage, things can change. So who controls the level of violence when you step onto the scene? I go, okay, the bad guy. Then on the last one, the bad guy controls the length of the fight. So it's location, duration, uh, uh, level of violence and duration. And they go, no, no, we control them. I don't know. Have you ever heard of a guy shooting a guy a bunch of times, the guy's still charging, and then he pistol whips him because his gun jammed or he ran out of ammo, but the guy was still coming at him. Or, you know, you shot a guy, he's still coming at you, you know, you're fighting over your long gun and your butt stroke him. Or you take out a tomahawk or a knife or, or your head, but I go... The will to resist, and that's, remember, General Gray's book for the Marine Corps, War Fighting, mm. says one of the greatest lines ever is, the fight is only over when the opponent's lost the will to resist. And so, so if that's true, then location, level of violence, and duration. And I, and I would tell guys, whether it was tier one or soccer moms in different ways, when you, when you can go, I'm going to figure out how to survive efficiently and effectively, but the fastest way for me to create a strategy to defeat this problem is for me to study this strategy. And to do that, I got to relinquish this idea that I'm controlling all these things mm. just to see in that moment and go, ah, and now our creative brand. So that's brain-based training. Uh, but all of that shit, I, you know, I, I had a very long contract with AWG. They were inspired by a bunch of that stuff and that turned into their outcomes-based training and uh, I, I forget their shooting program, which was really cool. So we, I was very grateful to collaborate on that. Um, Block-based training is the way most people, let's say, would learn jiu-jitsu or taekwondo or boxing. This is a jab. Mm -hmm. You throw a jab to set up your cross. You can throw, use a jab. It's just like done in blocks. Oh, you can't. We're not going to show you this stuff here because you're only a yellow belt. Mm -hmm. And you work in silos. Okay. Um, and, and really effective scenario-based training blends everything. So that's really intuitively brain-based where if you think about it, you might've gone to a driving school and then you went to a long gun school mm -hmm. and then you went to a, a shooting school. And then you went to, a, unless these instructors are talking to each other and, and, and showing how everything is interconnected, uh, then it's stay in silos and there's there's got to be a refractory delay when you go oh my god i got to switch to another weapon system or as opposed to understanding how they all work together yeah and so i know i'm rambling here and you asked me my life story but sorry i'm trying <laughs> to wrap this up um so it was 1980 i'm 20 years old yeah. and he dropped by his left hook and i go oh my god we teach self-defense wrong what i realized in that nano moment was that i had never thought about 
the scenario, the confined space, yeah. the fear, the anxiety, the distractions. Sure. It was just, well, well, just, you know, Static. Just wax on, yeah. wax off. And that became sterile. Yeah. And, and, but that moment, I literally looked at him. I said, are those your books that you had in school today? And he goes, yeah, why? I said, grab them, grab me, show me what happened. And we reverse engineered it and played with it. So two things happened. One was the start of, of truly reverse engineering scenarios based on actual events. But also I thought if he's ever in the situation uh, uh, again, he will have a mental blueprint of what he could do, should do, and shouldn't do. Yeah. You know? And, and, and I, like, I asked the question, like, what's, you know, what's the difference between doing the dog paddle in a pool in your backyard, uh, uh, a lake in Scotland or in the ocean off the coast of Bermuda and anyone listening, and we asked this in the class, people go, okay, pool, Scotland. Oh, he's talking about the Loch Ness monster ocean, Bermuda triangle. And we go, well, you've got the Loch Ness Monster, you've got, you know, Undertow, you've got uh, uh, sharks and Man of War and the Bermuda Triangle. There's planes and boats that have allegedly disappeared in there, right? And I go, but what's the difference with the dog paddle? The dog paddle is the dog paddle. Mm. What changes is our fear of the environment we're in. And if we can't manage our fear, we're going to have trouble managing maybe the skill set that we had developed. Uh, and, and, uh, and then to flip that to... You know, what's the difference between like a headlock, you're wrestling with your buddy watching a UFC, you're in a jiu-jitsu tournament, or you're, you're uh, uh, you know, clearing a, a, a cave or a room in, in you know, someplace overseas, and a guy jumps you and gets you in a headlock. Well, in the first case there, your buddy's doing a noogie on your head, and you're trying to give him a wedgie, and you're laughing, and you're drunk. In the second one, you know, you lose the fight, you tap out, and you go back, and your coach says, we can fix this. In the third one, you're suddenly going, shit, I got to get to a knife. I got to get to my pistol. Mm -hmm. This is sucks, right? I'm, I can't lose this fight because I'm downrange. Mm -hmm. uh, and what's the biomechanics of the attack might be the same. And the actual biomechanics of the counter might be the same, but the urgency and the risk and the danger change how we function as humans. And so where are you putting us all together? So BTS, you come up with this in 1985, but you have this five years from 1980 to 1985 where you're like experimenting and figuring these things out. And did you happen to have a, a good boxing gym or a boxing gym semi close to your house where you could go and actually train with multiple people that, that knew what they were doing and uh, yeah. develop that foundation? Is that how, how'd that evolve? Yeah. So, so the eighties were my incubator period. It's when I developed high gear. It's when I developed, they started what became the no fear program and the spear system. But also our our uh, our ballistic micro fight, non kinetic ballistic, like a like a short fight. I realized that most fights are twenty seconds long if you're swearing at each other for ten seconds. So the eighties were my incubator period, and all we did is scenarios, pretty much like Fight Club. Yeah. Um, you know, we get together once a month and beat the living shit of each other and record it with the old RCA, <laughs> uh, the old RCA uh, um, uh, stuff. And uh, it, it, it was amazing. We'd look back at that and uh, and study and go, holy shit, what do we do? And we would do things like, uh, I would do like like six on one. We'd put on mouth guards and headgear and hockey gloves. Uh, 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 before I developed the high gear, we had, uh, I'd wear like, remember I was from Canada, like hockey helmets for stuff like that. And that's, oh, that's yeah. actually doing all these scenarios, hundreds of these. Oh, Jack yeah. gave me the idea to um to do the um to develop the hydra suit 
Oh, I remember getting the, the motorcycle helmet back in the day for uh, JKD's straight blast. And so you'd have the right. person that had that on there and you're doing something similar to what you're talking about. And then boom, you're turning that into that straight blast right into that, that uh, motorcycle helmet on there as yeah. a, as a training yeah. aid. Yeah. It, and it, and it, it was, that was effective. I, I looked at that too. And I, I was riding bikes back then, but I, I knew that I couldn't really practice headbutts and elbows properly on yeah. that just uh, it was it was great for an isolation drill to work with straight yeah. blast. You had like a little bad glove on and whatever, not bust your mm -hmm. hands up. Um, but it was the same sort of idea. We just we just like 10x'd it by saying let's 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 cover the whole body and see where this goes. Um, but I did. I don't know if you remember the Hiltons. Um, uh, the, it was five uh, five brothers that were all pro fighters. Really like like a throwback to the. Uh, to the mafia run days of, of boxing. And they were, they had a really rough club in Montreal that I used to go to. Uh, 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 Davy Hilton fought for a world title back when fights were still 15 rounds. Um, and uh, Matthew Hilton, I think he also fought for uh, a title, but like a bat, like, a, like scary family, you know, like always in trouble with the law mm. in and out of jail. And, and it was, and it was their gym. I hung out there it was scary every time I went in there. Mm -hmm. I even went to one time I wanted to understand stuff. I went to Gleason's in New York city in my early twenties. And, uh, there's several seconds of my life missing in New York city in Gleason's in the Bronx or wherever that was. Cause I, I, I fought a guy who was ranked number, I sparred a guy who was ranked number 10 and I was like an arrogant martial artist with good reflexes. And I was like, I wanted to spar against a pro, but everyone knew me in Montreal. So, People either were very timid or tried to take my head off. Mm. And I just really wanted just like to be unknown and experienced. But in the back of my head, I was like going, I wonder how good I'm getting. Mm. So it was like, I went in there with a little, with this, this semi-conscious pride ego thing mm. and I'm standing in front of him and, you know, he's moving. I mean, he's ranked like in the top 10 in the world as a junior middleweight. Oh. And we're moving around, we're moving around. And, and I was, again, a good athlete. Right, pick up the shit fast, <laughs> doing the stuff. And but I it was also by this time, like let's say it was 1985-86. I've been teaching every day. When I started teaching in 1980, within a month, I had 30 private lessons a week. Mm. So I was working wow. every day for my dad at, at his company, and then every night and every weekend. So I was teaching an extra 30 to 40 hours a week just doing private lessons. And then in 85, I opened up my first official school and in uh, Canada. In Canada, up in Montreal, and uh, and I had a boxing gym there. I had ten heavy bags. I got had weights, a Wing Chun dummy, all, uh, all this stuff. It was badass. Juice bar, changing room it was pretty badass. Hey. And uh, ahead of your time, uh, yeah, it was it, it was nuts. So we called it the Eclectic Martial Arts Center, huh. and uh, it, you know, and and it uh, uh, and it, the, the the tagline under it was functional self defense, and people would would ask me what's functional self defense. And I go, I, like, I thought there was a lot of dysfunctional self-defense. Mm. It was just it, like, um, provocatively speaking, it, it was inadequate. We were just teaching the physical, but not the emotional, psychological. We were teaching about the scenario. We would just say, so if I said to you, you know, do you know how to get out of a headlock? You're going to say, yes, of course. But if I said to you, like, what type of scenario would you have to be in to be caught in a headlock? Mm -hmm. You then go, well, let me think about that. Well, mm -hmm. that's the problem is we're not teaching people when, right. when, where, and how a headlock would come on because that would improve your perception speed, which would make your reaction time faster. Yeah. 
So anyways, doing all, doing all that stuff, uh, 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 you know, in the eighties, um, uh, a, a lot of the, you know, cross training with people, a buddy of mine, Matt Walt Lysak, uh, uh, was a like badass fighter. You know, I'd go down to his place, started doing seminars in like 86, 87. You remember Panther productions? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think so, I still have some well, of their VHS tapes in a box somewhere. So, so dude, check this out. They come on there. I go. So by this time, like I, you know, I was in blackout magazine in 1980 and then every year. 1980. Yeah. That's- for my first, my first feature was in black. Room, no kidding. Did you write an article or were, what was the, yeah, uh, they, did a, they did a whole story on me. I, I actually, this is so funny. This is how nervous I was. I wrote, there was no email. So I wrote a letter to, to the editor. I wrote in typing. I wrote a hand letter, uh, handwritten yeah. letter, mailed it. And then like a month later, I get an answer. I get an answer back from the guy saying, Hey, call me. This sounds right. I was just explaining that I, I was, I explained in a three or four page letter, everything I told you up to now. Huh. And he said, this sounds fascinating. Call me. And uh, we get on the phone and he says, uh, well, if you're willing to come out to California, we'll do a story on you. So I'm like, okay, I borrow the money from my mom. You know, I'm freaking 19 and a half years old. I don't have money. I fly out there. I throw up on the side of the road just before the place because I'm so fucking nervous. I cannot believe Blackout Magazine is going to do an interview with me and put me in their magazine. I finally park. I've already like dry heaved on the side there. I'm so nervous, Jack. Yeah. And uh, as I'm as I'm walking out, Chuck Norris walks out of the building. I what? Almost, uh, yeah. No Chuck, way. I get a picture with him in the parking lot. No way. There's no dude. There's none of there's none of this. It's no. like it's like excuse me, sir. It's like I have my 35 millimeter camera. It's a shitty blurry picture. Uh, I'm waiting in the lobby. Bong Soon Han. Remember the hot keto master? Yeah. You know, from a from an event, and I'm like, these are all my heroes. No like, way, dude! I got goosebumps right now. That's why. Where in LA is it, by the way? Is it just uh, some it, office building somewhere? What do they have? This was in Burbank, I think, at the okay. time. Now they're in Valencia. Uh, they, 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 I think they've had three locations. I think this was the Burbank. I'm not mm. sure. Right, now, 1980, like 900 years ago. Um, but I get in there. They do the story on me, and the guy's like really impressed with the stuff. And then fast forward, 1986, I'm doing more and more our scenarios where we're, you know, we're doing our version of Fight Club with, with gear and crazy stuff. And uh, I contact Joe Jennings, the owner of uh, Panther Productions. Oh, okay. And I, I set up, I'm coming into town to do something with Inside Kung Fu Magazine. So I say, hey, while I'm in town, can, can I drive down to Orange County and, and show you our stuff? He's in his studio and he's actually editing a Paul Vunak series. Yep. So I'm in the studio watching. There's Paul there, and they're doing, you know, he's they're doing this take and this take and this take. Uh-huh. And going, let's use, let's, let's use take number three there. That's a great angle. Good job, guys. Okay. And he's he's making me wait. And I'm like watching and I'm like, oh fuck. Oh shit, you know. <laughs> And then it's like, okay. And I got a, like a demo tape of all just all our fights. Six on one, three on two, outside between parked cars, like just crazy shit nobody's ever seen. We plug it in. He starts watching. He watches 30 seconds of it. And then his head snaps around. He goes, holy shit, you guys are really fighting. <laughs> and then... You know, I say the rest is history. We, we, uh, and this is an interesting thing. And that's about Vunak who, who's looking at this or the, uh, the no, guy no, from this was, uh, Joe Jennings, okay, the owner of the 
Um, and uh, I go, yeah, like this is a drill called the panic. We actually, the original drill of our ballistic microphone was called the panic attack mm -hmm. because we would, we would, uh, um, these would be open seminars. You'd come in and sign a release, a waiver, but everyone would come in and be like a, like a street fighter, a bouncer, a boxer, because they knew we were doing this. It was semi-underground. But we would, we would always have index cards for people. And I go like, Jack, hey, thanks for signing up. Hey, what's your, what's the scenario you dread the most in the street? Mm. And I go, two guys with a knife. And I go, guess what? You're going to, and I wouldn't say this, but it would be like, okay, Jack, you're up next. And you get up and you put your helmet and gear on. And then all <laughs> of a sudden, I, we had a bunch of, we would all rotate role playing. And this, this is also the same thing I did when I would do, uh, when I would do military stuff for all the tier one guys. They would always want to bring in op four mm. from the regular army or regular team, regular uh, navy. I go, no, no, we're going to do, we're going to, we're going to do our own role playing with each other. No, no, we don't do that. I go, you, you need to see what this looks like to the bad guy, because if you see what it looks like when someone goes wham and comes at you with the with the with the spear off of the gun or whatever like that, and you go, holy fuck, I couldn't move away from that. That'll change your intensity mm. when it's time for you to move. And so because we were doing like these short engagements, I didn't have time to train role players. So we always did opt for with each other, which was a fantastic psychological uh, bonus. Anyways, so we rotate around. So I say, okay. And so if you're, if you had said to me when you, when you registered that your big fear was two guys with a knife, guess what you had, you know, mm. at some point in that, seminar day two right. guys with a knife so you see we try to get inside people's heads and it would totally change because what most people were doing when they thought they were doing scenario training jack they were sparring yeah they'd, they'd go okay guys let's do multiple sailing and you could see this think back you know, like if you did a multiple sailing drill you're wearing 16 ounce gloves with a headgear on and everyone started in a fighting stance and then you would spar it wasn't go sit down there right. have a bottle of water and pretend you're on your phone and then things kick off, right. go get in the car. So we were really uh, uh, innovative at the, for, for the early eighties mm -hmm. um, uh, to do that. But uh, it was crazy. And I forgot what we were talking about and where we were. <laughs> well, in the eighties, um, you developed in this system, black belt magazines calling you, you wrote the letter right. in, you go down there, you're uh, they, they do a feature on you oh, and I, I, more I, magazines yeah, find it from there. Like Kung Fu magazine finds it from yeah. there. And, so, and, uh, and when do you move down here then? When do you come down to the, to yeah. the States? Now I know why you're a really good writer is because you, you pay attention to details and you remember. <laughs> so, so, so Panther ends up, this is how I got discovered. Joe Jennings goes, Holy shit. You're really fighting. You yeah. Know, like then I explained the drills. He books us. I fly out to from Montreal and I'm there with, um, I, I bring out three of my top, top students and we film and normally said, look, you got five videos we're going to do. Uh, we need five days, one day per video. This is very important also. One day per video, because we do multiple takes of everything you do, and then we pick what we like the best angle, what, what highlights the movement best. And I said to him, I said, that's okay. Uh, we'll book for five days, but I'm only doing one take. He goes, well, okay, man, it's video. It doesn't cost anything. You know, we'll do multiple takes. We're producing this. I say, okay. We get out there and everything's broken down. Day one was cerebral self-defense, the mental edge, all our psychology is a whiteboard. You can see behind me, I'm a huge whiteboard fan too. And uh, uh, and then I um, then we had all of our tools, then we had all of our drills, 
And then we did our, our ballistic microfights and then our full-on scenarios. And uh, we finished filming everything on Wednesday morning around just before lunch. Yeah. All five in two and a half days, I would not let them do a take over. Uh. When Joe was there, I do something. There was one thing I was showing some of the footwork drills uh, uh, that, that, I, that I was teaching. And my ankle rolled uh, on the grass because we filmed this in a park. We filmed the entire thing in a park in, in uh, Orange County. Uh, and uh, my ankle rolls. At the end of the take, Joe says, hey, let's just reshoot that one because uh, your ankle rolled. I said, yeah, my ankle rolled, but I stayed in the drill, regained my balance and got back into this force on force isolation drill. He goes, yeah, but it looks like shit because you lost your balance. I think the more important message when I do the voiceover is you're not going to get a mulligan in a real fight. If you lose your balance, regain your balance, front towards enemy, fucking stay focused. I said, Joe, I told you this on Monday. I'm not doing any, any do-overs, nothing, unless there's a malfunction on your side, mm -hmm. whatever people see me do is what I can do. It's not the best take. And, uh, we, 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 uh, uh, filmed and finished early Wednesday. It took about six months for editing and post, uh, because we had to do voiceover and narration. And of course he had other stuff. And then when that launched, I started getting calls and that was really where everything jump started. I started getting calls, Australia, overseas, UK, and I started doing seminars all over the world, man. Uh, people looked at it. In fact, 1993 was the first UFC. I'm there writing for three magazines. Oh, nice. You were there. Yeah. Nice. yeah 1993. Denver. Um, and uh, I could send you, if I find it, I, there's a, there's a picture of me on the cage with my camera and all you can see is I'm wearing cowboy boots and my jeans. You can see my ass and my cowboy boots. Um, and, uh, but I, you know, interviewed Hoist and I interviewed all of everybody, but there were guys there, uh, who were fighting that recognized me from the panic attack and said, I wouldn't be doing this if I hadn't watched your tape. Cause you were doing crazy shit. I started doing crazy shit. And then the idea of testing it, Cause we weren't sparring. We were doing like this crazy shit. And it was like, it was nuts. How, how kind of underground subculture those, those, uh, those videos had become. Yeah. That so was that, an amazing time. That was a really yeah. pivotal time. I think, uh, things were changing. People were adapting. People weren't tied to, uh, the traditional martial arts as much as they had been in the past. Yeah. Um, minds were more open seeing things like this and realizing, Oh geez, maybe I need to, to work on some stand up Western boxing type things or, Oh, maybe my ground game. Okay, what happens if the thing goes to the ground and I can't kick or whatever it is. Uh, yeah. Paul Vunax obviously doing his, uh, his thing with, with Jeet Kune Do at the time. And I was doing that with him. I was going to these seminars, people were starting to travel. Uh, yeah. Students were starting to travel to instructors also. So it was a really cool yeah, time to be able to that test. Golden era, that golden era mm -hmm. of eclecticism starting yeah. to branch out. It really was. And people, you know, uh, you know, Bruce Lee, really, I mean, what a pivotal person. Um, and most people just think of some of the movies and, and that sort of a thing. No, but, he, you know, when you're thinking about a figure that changes, uh, institutions, plural, uh, and really opens a lot of people's minds. I mean, I don't know what the 1980s, uh, martial arts scene, uh, combative scene, that sort of a thing would have looked like without him and Jeet Kune Do and saying, Hey, it's okay 
to not do these traditional things and be married to uh, a bow down at the altar of a, of a certain martial art or a certain personality, right. but bring in uh, some Western fencing moves, uh, bring in Greco Roman wrestling, wrestling, obviously. Uh, yep. And then, you know, years later, obviously in the early 90s, when people start hearing more about this thing called Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, um, let's incorporate that in as well. And having that, that open mind as far as discarding, use what's, take what's useful, discard what's useless. Um, oh, yeah. It's not just martial arts. That's a lot of life in general as well. So uh, it was pivotal, pivotal personality in, in uh, as far as he, combatants he, goes. He, he was huge. He was iconic, man. And, and you know, you remember his little uh, tombstone he had made. I mean, how, how far ahead of his time was a guy in his 20s who, who thought to, to create a tombstone that he kept in, a, in his office that said, and you'll remember this, in memory of a once fluid man crammed and distorted by the classical mess, mm. right? And it was like a reminder of like, hey, we need to be spontaneous. We need to adapt. We need to improvise. And we can't look at 1973, you know, Bruce is doing like, you remember when, when he uh, he rolled the guy, put him in an arm bar, then rolled the guy and locked him out. I mean, there's a lot of people who are very technical at jujitsu who go, that wasn't very good, but it was 1973. Yeah, exactly. Like he was still, he's still new to, to blend the judo, the jujitsu, the, you know, he was so far. And he was a spiritual guide. I never met him. I don't know if you knew this, but I became very good friends with his son, Brandon. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, that, that was crazy. I was actually on the set of the crow three weeks before the accident. Oh. And, um, and, um, but, but that was, that was nuts. You want to hear, you want to hear an insane story about yeah. Brandon? Yeah. Um, he calls me up. Uh, so I, I, we met in LA, we were working out together. We we're training at the time. He, he's, tra he's training with, with Dan Inasano yeah. and the crew and in Torrance and mm -hmm. uh, we're getting together and, and he's flown to Montreal, trained with me. Uh, and uh, we're, he gets the, the, um, He's already doing movies and stuff. And he calls me to say, you want to come to Hong Kong and do work on Legacy of Rage? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no, I'm busy. I'm like, fuck yeah. Like, so it's like, I'm 28 years old. Uh, I fly to Hong Kong and uh, we choreograph this, this, this crazy uh, uh, badass scene. Uh, we're working in there. I'm, I'm there over a month and they're doing, they, they edit the shit so fast. There's, there's actually like a, private uh screening like the movies like we finished filming a week a week later there's a, a private screening they've already edited it. crazy so linda lee flies over with young shannon and we go pick them up at the at, at, at the hong kong airport it was a thai cat I, I don't forget the name but but i don't know you probably remember that black and white photo of bruce lee picking up steve mcqueen at the, you know, if I showed it to you, go, oh my God, because mm -hmm. I know you're a nerd too, like this. You, we'd look at the pictures and go, I hope some of this energy comes to photos in. are amazing. Right? So here I am. I'm like, holy shit, this is like Bruce Lee stood here. Oh my God. And I'm walking and I grab, uh, um, I'm helping with the bags. We go to the hotel to, to drop off uh, Linda and the family. And I'm walking and I'm thinking, the Lee estate has money. Why are Linda Lee's suitcases like fucking so shit? like torn, tartan, weird. And I look down as I'm walking and it's got the initials BL. Wow. On them. And I almost, dude, I got, you Whoa. can't see, <laughs> but I'm like going, Oh my God. Like that's what a nerd it was, you know, at Brandon's house. Uh, he had a bunch of all, you know, what a voracious reader Bruce was. And he always just yeah. write 
you know, I love that picture of him in his library and there's just books. Yeah. I forget how many just volumes, but thousands. And, and he had, and he had such wonderful handwriting. Right. Right. And so I, I pull open a book there and I, all of a sudden I see Bruce's handwriting and I look at Brandon, I'm like freaking out. Like I'm going, Holy shit. This is Bruce's book. And this is his notes in the column and everything. He's circling this. And I go, Hey, Brandon, it's okay if I borrow this book. <laughs> and he's like, I know every book here. Don't even try to sneak it out. <laughs> you know, but it was, uh, but wow. when, like for a guy who's a martial art nerd, so inspired to my, the quote, I think I'm probably a self-defense entrepreneur because of Bruce Lee. And there was one line that he said that I, I wrote down and always remembered it. He, Bruce said, to hell with circumstances, I'll make my own circumstances. Something to that effect. Mm. Anytime I had a roadblock, I wanted to quit. Anytime I was like, you know, because listen, a lot of people tried to stop me and the momentum of the company, they just, you know, and I got called a Bruce Lee wannabe, but you know, and stuff like that. And it was hard. And I would just remember, you got to create your own circumstances, man. It's not going to fall on your lap. Amazing. Yeah. I think what it's, I mean, Brandon was one of the first person people to bring Jeet Kune Do into the movies, uh, early nineties. Uh, I mean, the whole, 80s i don't know if anybody did a straight blast or anything like that but rat was a rapid fire is that the what came out maybe 93 maybe 92 right there right anyway i haven't seen that since then but uh it stands out i remember one fight scene in particular i'm gonna go try to watch it maybe maybe tonight um but uh i've been meaning to watch it actually for years again um just because i remember those fight scenes really standing out and how special that was and then man we got killed on the set of the of the crow and and just reading about how that happened, you know, you, I mean, it's, you know, the attention to detail and, and it's so heartbreaking, you know, cause what a, what a future he had. And oh, it's such a, yeah, definitely. You talk about like, like, uh, uh, genes and genetics and stuff like that. Like you could literally see Bruce in him mm -hmm. and, and mannerisms and, oh yeah. And, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. People should watch those, those films and, and read more about Bruce Lee if all you know about him is maybe what uh, you've seen in a, one movie or a clip of a movie or something like that, but um, such an inspirational person. Um, and for people that are wondering what we're talking about on the a set of The Crow, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, revolver, when you do a close-up shot and someone cocks a hammer on a revolver, there are these plastic uh, things that look like bullets at the end because in a revolver, obviously, you can see. And if you didn't see that there was something in there, it would look like you're just, the cylinder is moving and there's nothing in there. So they have these like plastic things that look like bullets in there. Uh, the end, uh, so the end part of a cartridge there. And then, okay, cut. And then, boom, you take those out. And then you load it with whatever blank is appropriate for the distance between actors, uh, then give it back and, and, and go. Um, but only five of those came out of the six, um, round cylinder, and then they load it with the blanks. But now you have essentially a blank behind a projectile and that goes, and, uh, that's what did it. I, I think that's what happened. Is that, is that your understanding? Yeah, pretty, pretty much the, the, the squib, the blank blew out. I think what had happened was the, 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 the pop. So what I had heard was uh, somebody was firing on a blank and the primer popped a piece off that got stuck and nobody checked the, the, uh, the, um, the barrel properly or cleaned it. I, and I don't know, there's so many different mm -hmm. things, but when that, that squib, like you said, is the gunpowder that blew, that blew that, that projectile out at a slow enough distance a slow enough uh, uh, rate of acceleration uh, because it wasn't like like a full round, right. but, but with enough 
velocity and impact had penetrated uh, Brandon's stomach and did too much damage to save him. Ugh. So yeah, Brutal. it was it was horrible getting a phone call. Yeah, I bet. Uh, I bet. So you're crazy. doing all this. You have uh, BTS and is Spirit at the same time, or how's this all coming coming together? What does the What does the '90s look like for you? Yeah. So so so. Uh, development of high gear happened in the eighties, but it took five years and, and launched in 1993. In fact, it was your former employers that, that kickstarted high gear. It was Naval special warfare that, um, uh, actually I went out there with a prototype to the advanced combat training group in, in Coronado, showed them the gear. They were about to buy a shitload of red man suits, saw the functionality. You could, you could muzzle strike, you could grapple, you could flex tie mm. and they're like, holy shit. And they canceled that order and ordered our stuff. It took us 18 months to go from prototype to production, which was crazy. They kept rewriting and extending the purchase mm. order. Cause you know, when you write it, it's like delivered us in 30 days. Mm. Like, and I just said, yes, we can knowing <laughs> that I'm have to work the model. So, uh, so the, so the eighties were the incubator period. I created the, the, the first iteration of spear in the eighties didn't have, and this is also cool. Uh, for you to hear, um, spear wasn't always an acronym. Mm-hmm. So what I did was when I realized when I started to develop this, this, this system of startle flinch, I realized that if I put my hands up like this in front of you, if I was like sideways facing, you know, I'm, I'm about to fight off and I go, shit, and my hands come up here, that sudden movement here forced people to come around and overhand. There was no more straight blast. I always get this question. What do you do if a guy straight punches? Well, your stance is in a, is in the wrong place. Mm. If I'm over here, I'm, I've, I've unconsciously occupied the center line. And if you want to hit me, you'll naturally, and I explain this behaviorally, like if you're out on a run and you're running through a trail jack and all of a sudden, and you can think about this because you spend time in the woods. If, if you're, if you're running somewhere and there's like a branch that's fallen a little bit and there's a little leaf in your way, you don't run into the leaf, your head naturally, mm. you know, you're running and you see it and you just kind of slip it or you're coming across, you're walking and you see a spider web or some worm hanging. You don't go and then do a rising block. You just, you, so when, when there's suddenly something occupying your center line, if you're in the moment, the throws of passion, you just, you'll naturally curve around it. So it actually seduced sucker punches, which made it easier to penetrate the center line. Mm. So it was really set up. Uh, uh, like that. And we would call it the spear because I wanted you to impale the attack. The idea was I was in my stance. You'd be like this going, ah, can you jam whether it was a tackle or a haymaker? And I was locked and loaded and it was like, wham and slam it. And it was a quarter extremity, really powerful movement. And we called it the spear because it was iconic. A spear penetrates, a spear impales, as the spear uses the extensor chain to thrust into the enemy. So 1993, this is wonderful serendipity. 1993, I'm in Coronado. Is this the armbar the seal story? The, no, well, it, it becomes, it, this is, this is the third day of this. I do my high gear demo. Um, I do my high gear demo and they asked me, uh, added, I can tell the armbar the seal story, but the, 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 the other, the other part of it is the, the spear wasn't an acronym but I would always write it in block letters because it had become a staple in the system. Mm-hmm. We would always practice the spear stance. It would always be spear, spear. In fact, I'm just looking at this now. I pulled it out. This is from the 80s. 
like this shit is just all stuff notes from the 80s and there's the original spear spontaneous protection England, aggressive retaliation no way so, i don't know if you can see that yeah yeah the original acronym spontaneous protection enabling aggressive retaliation instinctive uh, instinctual tactics look at all that info on there dude so you got to hear this i'm off on multiple tangents but 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 <laughs> it, it makes sense when jump ahead when 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 i got back and and uh 1993 i got invited to talk at the american society of law enforcement trainers uh, symposium and I got 600 trainers in the audience and I've got, you know, uh, uh, private classes and, and stuff like this. And there were a lot of people going, who's this guy? He's not a cop. What does he know? He's never arrested anybody. Da, 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 da. And then a couple of people were like, you know, there's some, some, uh, Vietnam vets who had done some serious shit who went, what you're saying is true, but I've never heard anyone articulate it like this. I had another guy, a very famous, uh, cop, who came up to me and he said, you're teaching in three seconds before the fight everyone else teaches. Mm-hmm. I mean, Bob Willis. Um, I was like, what? Say that again. He says, like, everyone teaches how to get out of a headlock, how to do a gun disarm. What do you, how do you stop a guy here? But there's like three seconds before that where you it make you make or break it. It's the mindset, it's the fear management, and, and it's the controlling of that flinch response and getting back into the fight. So all of a sudden, everyone's talking about this stuff. Um, but the, and I show you this cause I'm telling two stories at once. And I just noticed it now because the original acronym was spontaneous protection, enabling aggressive retaliation. When I did the demo for the seals, and then I had the armbar story happen the next day, they then contracted with me and I came back a few months later and I taught them the system. It was then that I said, here's the spear. And I showed them the spear at back then you guys were uh, mostly using MP5s for a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, so I'm here like this doing, doing my stuff and I'm going and I'm moving towards guys like this. And, uh, one of them, one of the guys says, uh, he goes, that looks like our MP5 stands. And I'm like, what's an MP5? They go, oh, that's <laughs> our, our sub gun. But it looked like our, you know, you, you, would yeah, yeah. Like, and so they loved it. And I was suddenly, I, I realized, holy shit, this is complimentary because my empty hand stance, if I'm here like this, and then you throw me an MP5, I do this. You throw me a shotgun, I do this. You, th- you, you show me, a, you throw me a pistol, I do this. The, and it, there was a, a quote I used out of Musashi's Book of Five Rings. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite lines in there was, make your everyday stance, your fighting stance, make your fighting stance, your everyday stance. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, that's cool. And that was what we were doing is like, can you fight from a chair like this? Can you fight from here? If you always need to be in this stance or this stance right. or body kid stance that was a problem because in the <laughs> real world you don't walk around like that yeah anyways so i i i trained the seals on day two they go what what does spear mean i go what do you mean what does it mean it's we've that's what we've been doing for two days they go no no we understand the spear and, and we understand <laughs> and the attack like when someone would attack you right we, we do, we'd be coming in and the movement would be from here <laughs> sorry bob um, you, you fucking, you would nail it. The power. You think about, you think about the impact there. The, the the spear is the equivalent of a split jerk in Olympic lifting. It's a quarter extremity movement that that just drives out of your legs through your core and come. It's the most powerful thing that you, that you can do, regardless of gender or size. So it doesn't look like much when you see it, but when you get hit by it, for the tactical community, you come in and fucking nail somebody. 
and they're now suddenly they're out of your uh, uh, out of your personal space, and you thrust them into in, into the kill zone or feel the fire or or whatever for somebody else to pick up or you to pick up. Check out their hands. So it first emerged out of the tactical community uh, as as a wonderful uh, evolution and transition from okay. what we call no room to shoot to no time to shoot. Um, but anyways. Here I am working with the SEALs. They want to know what SPEAR means, Jack. <laughs> Everything they has to be an acronym in the military. Right, because because I would always capitalize it. <laughs> and literally, it's a true story. I was teaching in, in uh, uh, Normandy, France. What an amazing trip that was. I was teaching for a, a, uh, a, a private entrepreneur who had heard about me. He flew, flies me to, to Normandy, France. Wow. So I'm like exploring that, and we're doing... I'm waiting for him to start a class and it's bugging me. It was like literally last week I left Coronado and I'm going, what would it be if it was an acronym? Well, I'd already been talking about weaponizing the start of flinch. So spontaneous protection had been part of my nomenclature. Yeah. Hey, if, if you stand up to, to threaten me and I go, whoa, my start of flinch bypassed my cognition. I like, how many times have you flinched in your life, Jack? Yeah. Who knows? Thousands. Have you ever thought? I need to flinch now. <laughs> right. uh, nobody thinks to flinch. Yeah. Oh, this is going to be really fast. I should move out of the way really fast. Yeah. Right. You, so, so flinching is non-conscious and it's faster therefore than it's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. So I'm there. I write down on a whiteboard. I'm waiting for my, my client. I write down spontaneous protection and then I write, well, I've always been moral, ethical, legal. I always say, let's the scenario dictate. And, um, I know what, I weather the ambush. All fights are dangerous. The most dangerous fight is the ambush. The ambush will hijack executive function. Executive function bypasses complex motor skills where all my theoretical answers are, all my martial arts answers are in my, complex, um, in my cognitive brain. And then suddenly I know how to do all these martial arts as I had. And somebody would go, Wah! come at me. And I'd be like, fuck, where did that come from? If I weathered the ambush, I was back in the fight. And now, and I wrote down aggressive retaliation. Mm. And I called the guys in Coronado, I said, I've got your acronym. They go, go. Spontaneous protection, enabling aggressive retaliation. So there it is again. Mm. That's, that's how old this is. I start teaching. It was 1993. So, so Wait, is that the same board or is that just this information that's rewritten on the board? That, that was, that was a board that I rewrote. I didn't write that in Normandy. Yeah, I was, I was like, oh, but, if he saved this but, and it didn't get erased over all these years. But, but, it, but, it, but I came back and wrote it. Yeah. Right? I say, this is, this thing's 30 something years old. And you haven't um, erased it, you mean? No, no, I, it, this is, so, so, because here's, do you know what the actual acronym is for SPEAR? It's That's not the look. that. Okay. Spontaneous protection enabling accelerated response. Spontaneous protection enabling accelerated response. Here's the change. I call, I call the guys up in, um, Coronado, they love it. Aggressive retaliation, they love it. Yeah. Okay, great. Anything aggressive, you're gonna, it's a winner. Yeah. I get back, it's 1993. I start teaching cops because I went to this ASLEC conference, the American Society of Law Enforcement Trainers, and training all these cops. And uh, it's starting to catch on. And they go, well, What does spear mean? And I go, it's, You're going to love this spontaneous protection, enabling aggressive retaliation. And every cop, I talk to goes, holy shit, we can't use that. <laughs> I knew that. I knew where that was going. Right. And so suddenly I get a call from a big police department that wants to adopt the spear and they go, yeah, we want to train with you. We want to get certified, but we got to change the acronym. We can't call it that. 
And I'm like, what the fuck were you talking about? Yeah, our legal department, we can't have in our no. use force manual aggressive retaliation. Right. And I'm like, oh, oh shit. And I literally, it took me 24 hours to go, okay, okay, calm down, calm down. It was like, it was like somebody, you know, meeting me going, yeah, we met your son. He's really cool, but yeah, we're going to change his name. Yeah. Because I was so like proud of this. Like right, I, mean, right. I, yeah. I spent six, seven years developing this at that right. time. And I changed it to spontaneous protection, protection enabling accelerator response. And it came to me, that's what we're doing. The mm. kinetic energy that's created from the start of flinch. When you flinch, Jack, you inhale. If I said to you, mm. if I said to you, um, punch me as hard as you can, elbow me as hard as you can, you wouldn't go and exhale right. and drop your hands. You'd go, sorry, Tony, I got to <laughs> do it. And you would, you would like yeah. explode, inhale and your hands would come up and you'd go wham and you'd, you'd lock and load and you'd drop your hardest shot in. Well, when you get scared and your primal self triggers a startle flinch, guess what you do? You go, you mm -hmm. inhale, your lats spread, your traps come up and your hands come up to protect your head and you're locked and loaded for a finger jab, a palm strike, a forearm or an elbow yeah. because the bad guy surprised you. We should be in that moment kissing the bad guy going, thank you for locking and loading my close quarter arsenal. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. So you're doing all this, you, you change, you adapt. Once again, adapt yeah. to a changing battle space where I was always yeah. about adapting. Uh, so you do that with the acronym as well. Um, and how long do you work? Do you work on and off with the, with the SEAL teams and eventually you guys make it out East or what's that journey? Yeah. So I done stuff. I actually, my first stop was at Little Creek. They loved it. And then, but the whole uh, advanced combat training program had really started to that one month course you guys were going through. Uh -huh. it, it, all combatants got moved to the West Coast. And uh, uh, so the whoever I was talking to in, in the group command, because got pushed up after a couple of you know seminars and demos and presentations, they're like, this is great, but we can't, we can't officially contract you you got to go to the west coast and and get their attention uh, um so that was 1993 i did stuff for uh a few years and until a a an exclusive non-compete uh happened with uh another training company which was very frustrating to a lot of you guys because you would hear about our stuff we'd meet at different at different events or whatever and they go man we're bringing you into to to our unit and I go, well, you know, who are you with? What service are you with? They go, oh, you know, I, I Navy. And I go, well, sorry, you can't train with me unless you self-fund and do it privately. What are you talking about? That's bullshit. And then they call me up and go, holy shit. Yeah, they're so, so that only lasted, I don't even remember how many years, but a number of years. A long time. Uh, yeah, long, long, enough long enough to get an imprint. And I'm still friends with some of the guys uh, from that original 1993. Nice. Uh, uh, and probably, probably names, uh, you know, yeah. these guys are, I, I can say their names cause they're, uh, uh, do you remember Mike Jaco? Uh, yeah, I know the name. Yeah. But I, yeah. I don't think we so he, he, he was the guy, Mike Ferguson, uh, uh, um, uh, Shane Ludwig. I know that and name. the other guys are still in or doing stuff. So I'm not going to mention their names. That's wild. Yeah. There was uh there, th that's always been a strange thing. I don't know if it's the military in general or, uh, just Naval special warfare. Um, with combatives. Well, just with combatives in general. Uh, we seem pretty, 
we're pretty quick to adapt to, to other things. Uh, yeah. Tactically, I mean, you have to, you have to be. Enemies changing based on your tactics and what they're observing yeah. on the battlefield. You, you can't keep doing. You, anyway, got to adapt. That's being, that's the, the, the point. But for some reason, with combatives, there was a weird, a weird period for probably. I don't know. Let's see. Still is. Yeah. Right. 10 years. I remember it being like a a, service is all over. Yeah. A lot of it has to do with, uh, but the army and Marine Corps have the, do they have their own thing now? Don't they have their belts and all that stuff? I mean, that's something. I mean, he's got the, uh, the Mac P program and the Marine Corps got the McMap program and the, and a lot of it, you know, and it's funny because I've been brought in to consult mm -hmm. over the years with, with every, with every one of them, but it, it, a lot of people still see the spear as something you do with your forearm. Mm. They don't realize that that at the, at the deepest brain level, brain-based level, it's understanding the neurobiology of survival. Mm. And that should be part. So we did, this was interesting. Somebody who I trained 10 years ago, that contract ended and somebody who I trained when they were operational, we still in, can't mention his name, uh, went to green team which was the, like the training area. And I can say that, I think I'll find out soon. Hopefully, I can. <laughs> That's fine. But, uh, but he calls me up. He goes, man, I've been waiting 10 years to be here so I could do this. Cause your stuff is the shit. I had a guy. So I don't know if you, if, if you knew this, but on the nine 11, I was actually down at, at range 19 uh, training the army the army guys that 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 uh, unit that sounds like an airline, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, and I was in there on the like September 11th. Wow! And then uh, I didn't see I didn't see uh, uh, this particular squadron, and they were the guys that always brought me back because what I would always do, everything I always did was always remember my 1980 origin story. Mitch loses the fight because of the scenario. I said, "Oh my God, we're doing everything wrong." Here we are, decades later. People are still going, here's how you get out of this move. Here's how you get out of this move. Yeah. And they're they're not making this connection to the scenario will dictate. And your self-awareness improves your critical thinking and situational awareness That's is it. intrinsically connected to your self-awareness. That's right. You, so you, if you want fully functional situational awareness, which is everything in managing violence, well, everything yeah. in every business and relationships, but particularly, like if I screw up something in business, which I have many times, I go, oh, fuck, okay, okay, I got to start over. <laughs> if I screw up something in a relationship, oh, I go, oh man, okay, I got to start over. But if you screw something up in a truly violent encounter, you might not get to start over. Yeah. So, um, so it, it, it was, I don't know, man, it was, it's, it's fucking nuts. Uh, uh, all, all of these, these, these different groups. Yeah, I don't. I don't know why, because you brought it up when you were talking about the '80s. How it was this incubator yeah. kind of like this golden era? Yeah, and and to me, I I would always I would always say that like, hey guys, I'm teaching you. So I created a program for military teams called No Room to Shoot, No Time to Shoot, No Need to Shoot, and we would insert it between shoot no shoot training. I go, look, you're already trained. You already know how to stack. You already know how to clear a room. I'm not teaching tactics. I'm teaching you come in and you suddenly realize. Oh, the person I'm supposed to save has Stockholm syndrome and they're coming at me like a fucking maniac. I'm supposed to rescue them. Maybe I shouldn't be muzzle striking this person just because that's what my muscle memory, mm. oh shit, and did. Or like, so no need to shoot. Wrong room, non combatants, but they're freaking out. Yeah. No need to shoot. Oh, yeah. um, and we created scenario drills around that and you would explore 
the psychophysical response time of escalating or, or de-escalating yourself in relationship to this emerging scenario. Yeah. And, well, and we did we did crazy stuff, but a lot of people they just because of this, I don't know if it's a martial arty thing, they just saw me as a competitive martial artist. We go, no, we run the combatives program here. You don't train with Blauer, you don't train with mm. Croc, or you don't train with jujitsu. It depends. And and you know this, each place had their own, you know, uh AC, A and C squadron love jujitsu, B squadron for a <laughs> long, long time. We're doing my stuff. Um uh, but that would, but crazy, crazy experience for me to be there as a combatives. Jeez. I, yeah. On the day, that's, that's crazy to be there on, on nine 11 doing that. Um, well, what you mentioned earlier, probably one of the things that is the most important, uh, uh, out of all this training that one can do is that situational awareness that you talked about doing all these things you talked about being here in this scenario, different scenarios, um, you know, learning all of this. It's, it's that, and it, it's an overused term, but that lifestyle component to it that makes you pick your head up out of the phone or whatever else you're doing and just be more generally aware of your surroundings, more generally alive, more in tune with that sixth sense, uh, all of those things like that. What you mentioned in the, in the earlier part of what you were just talking about is that is what I've often thought is of enormous value, whether you're doing jujitsu or you're boxing or you're doing a system or whatever it might be, or you're going to a class and you're doing, okay, I'm going to do a five day or a three day pistol class, five day, three day carbine class, whatever it might be. Um, yeah, you're learning to manipulate that weapon system and you're getting good at changing your mags and all that sort of thing. But more importantly, you're learning to look around a little bit and you're just becoming yeah. more in tune with the world in general. Um, and I think that is probably uh a, a, the greatest value of doing all these things it just it, it brings you back to what those the foundational elements of protecting the gift of life uh that we've had to do from the beginning of time up through today uh it gets you back to that uh and it's not a paranoia thing it's just what you have to do to serve your, what you had to do to survive for most of human history. Um, but, uh, it brings you back to that. So, uh, not necessarily that you're, you know, this, 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 what we're doing right now, I'm going to drop my cell phone and I'm going to do this and that and boom. And that's awesome. But what it does is it opens all of this up, all of this peripheral vision up, all of this situational awareness up. And that's what really I think is the value of doing all of these things at, at that level. It brings you out of this, opens you up to everything else and allows you to avoid or run or do whatever you need to do to maybe not be in that uh, life and death struggle. Yeah, hundred percent. And, and a couple of things I wanted to piggyback on there is, you know, we have a max, I don't know if I shared it earlier, no awareness, no chance, no awareness, no chance. Mm. And we've, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a nerd in case you haven't figured out I me, like I like to go down the rabbit holes. And I, so, you know, we'll look at the training we go, there's attack specific awareness and then scenario specific awareness. And so what you're doing is you're, you're, you've developed this hyper awareness for, you know, the attack specific is truly understanding this element of jujitsu or striking or, or weapon play. Uh, but the scenario awareness is, you know, you go to Scotland, their number one leadoff shot isn't a sucker punch like in America, it's a headbutt. Mm -hmm. So that's blending scenario awareness, right? I'm, I'm now moving about the planet. What do I need to be aware of here? I'm in this area. Okay. The snakes are poisonous. This area, the snakes are poisonous. 
this is again part of that that research and part of that when you train like you said when you start doing courses and thinking about that stuff if you're open to it you're expanding your brain and you're 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 improving the function of your reticular activating system where it's just like training your brain like these are the things that are important to me now but there's so much more that as as good citizens uh that we can learn and it's important i talk about it as the three eyes instincts intuition intelligence and getting them to communicate together uh, every one of us has had an event in our lives where we were betrayed in a relationship betrayed in business uh had a bad feeling about uh a driver or a car or an event, and then suddenly there's an accident, some weird shit like black box shit. And then when after it happens, you go, oh my God, I fucking knew that was gonna happen. And so when and when I do my, my workshops, my seminars, I go, how many of you have been betrayed in a relationship? Every hand goes up. How many of you have business? Every hand goes up. How many of you had something bad happen to you in your life? And then afterwards, when the dust settled, you're sitting there went, you know, I fucking knew that was gonna happen. Mm-hmm. And everyone goes, they can recall events like that. I go, what do we need to change in our self-awareness DOS system, like if then go to, mm. where if you could say, I knew that was going to happen, how do you how do you go back in time and have that, that metaphoric butterfly effect so that you averted that danger, you averted that risk? And this is teaching people to have the courage to trust their intuition and explore that. And and one of the one of the most important principles, uh, you know, that, that our, our training um, tries to like instill in people is this choose safety model, the decision to choose safety when danger is imminent. That's mm-hmm. our definition of self-defense that applies to relationships, finances, business, government crap, weaponizing mm-hmm. a fear, the decision to choose safety when danger is imminent. If you Google the definition of self-defense, Jack, the standard definition will say something to the effect of, uh, uh, you know, the physical act of protecting your property or your life. Mm. It doesn't include situational awareness. It doesn't even include de-escalation. And so when people are studying self-defense, by definition, they think it's how do I get out of a headlock? But you know this better than anybody. You've already been attacked if you're in a headlock. Yeah. And now you're behind the curve. And yes, there's things you can do, but like your rant about situational awareness, don't I have a better chance of averting, avoiding, or intercepting this danger if I know it's coming? And so every victim of violence who lived to tell the tale, this is my decades of research, everyone I've ever interviewed said they had a bad feeling. Mm. They just didn't know what to do with that. And so, you know, I tell people, and this is a a neat thing, when we say, what's the safest thing you could do here? I'll ask people, they go, well, you know, but isn't playing it safe kind of like a, like a boring life? I go, yeah, but I'm not telling you to play it safe. I'm asking you to choose safety. You're in an active shooter situation. You don't have a weapon. You're 30 feet away from the bad guy. Somebody's been hit in front of you and they fall down on you. And now there's literally dead weight on you. Should you sit up and go, you didn't get me? Should you play dead? You go, play dead. And if he gets close to you, and it looks like he's dead checking people. Should you fight now that he's close to you? Yes. This is the Socratic conversation of what is the safest thing I could do. There's a time to charge a threat. There's a time to go out the back door and then figure out 
how to circle around or, or call in the cavalry. I don't know what it is, but I'm trying to get people to, to realize this. If you manage your fear, you can manage the fight. It doesn't guarantee victory, but we need to get our brain engaged because the mind navigates the body. You don't go for a run because your quads said, let's go for a run. You don't elbow somebody because your elbow wants to do an elbow. You go, I'm in a confrontation and the closest weapon to the closest target right now is this fucking elbow. And I'm going to drop it on this guy right now. Mm -hmm. um, and when we understand the neurobiology interference, potential for interference, and the neuroscience of how signal speed works in our brain, we become way more dangerous and way more effective in spite of fear. We're now using fear as fuel, but we can now access our skill set. Nice. Yeah. I've always, you know, thought about people talking about survival and survival is the baseline. Um, like we're training for that worst case scenario, being on the ground in a parking lot at night, multiple assailants. Okay. Okay. You're training for that, but, uh, and you want to prevail in that situation and destroy everyone that, uh, that has, uh, uh, threatened to take away that gift of life, uh, that is yours. But, uh, it's survival is the baseline. Like that's, it's prevailing. We want to prevail. We don't want to survive. We want to prevail. Sur survival, got it. No, we want to prevail in these situations. And a lot of that is due to trusting those instincts, trusting that feeling. And I talk to the kids about this all the time. And I said, don't feel bad about having a bad feeling. Like trust it, right. get out of there and figure it out later. But trust yeah. it. Um, you know, we have all of these, all of these generations of evolution that led to this being at this point right now. Don't suppress it. Don't suppress it. It's there for a reason. Uh, trust that feeling, get out of there. We'll figure it out later. Um, yeah, and, and, and that's that true safety model. It's the safest thing I do right now. And I ask people this, I want to share this with your listeners because they'll, they'll, you, you know, when I, when I get in the zone, I spit out a bunch of big words and I, <laughs> and I want this to be meaningful. Um, think of a time that you're driving and you accidentally cut somebody off and they flip out. They got a road rage moment. They drive up on your ass. You're like, dude, fuck, sorry. And you're like, you know, it was the blind spot thing. Then they come up beside you and they're flashing you the finger. And then they're, they're doing crazy shit. For a moment, we all get angry. Mm. For a moment, we speed up often. For a moment, when they pass us, we speed up a little bit. Maybe am I the only one that does this or, or you know, <laughs> Right. Maybe we're giving them the finger back. You fucking crazy. Like it was an accident. We're not choosing safety there. And I use this as a model because, and I'm not exempt from this. I'm, I'm a human being. But if I remember the mantra, the goal, the mission that for me to survive, whether I'm a caveman or it's 2022, it's what is the safest thing I can do right here. Mm -hmm. And it may be to, to sharpen a piece of wood into a pointy stick that we'll call a spear and impale the attack because it just killed one of my kids or one of my tribe, this bear, this jaguar, whatever it is. And like, imagine the first guy that, <laughs> that tried this going, oh, this stick doesn't break. <laughs> but imagine the, the metaphor there is even with the fear, because I'm sure the first stick broke. Like somebody's going, yeah, it needs to be thicker, right? <laughs> you know, it's like nobody, you don't develop a perfect spear first, the first evolution of it. Um, but it's the idea of there's things we do in life that we need to be, that are going to have a ton of fear with them, but we got to do them anyhow. And we got to do this, this umbrella thing and share this lingo with your kids and let me know as a dad to another dad. Um, when I, when I talk to my kids about safety, if I use scary words, it makes them scared. Mm. And I don't mean to. I go, look, there's bad guys out there. You got to watch this. No, you can't go to the park by yourself. There's 
pedophiles are like it scares the shit of them. But saying, listen, if you get a bad feeling about anybody, any place, anything, you need to get out of there as soon as you can. So this is a true safety model. What is the safest thing you do? Where's the safest place you can go? And it gives them this idea of like moving to safety. And if it turns out after, like you said, you know, there's no downside to choosing safety. If it turns out after you misinterpreted uh, some sort of stimulus, you're still safe. Mm -hmm. But if we walk around with blinders in our head, ignoring it, and this is what, you know, our, our cognitive bias, our, our fear of being disruptive or, or asserting ourselves puts us in more danger in the modern era because we don't want to be that person. I didn't want to start a confrontation. Well, now you're getting robbed or now you're getting raped yeah. or now you're getting dragged to a secondary crime scene because you didn't want to act on your instincts and yeah. intuition. And it's tough because a lot of society is telling us to do that. It's telling us, don't yeah. upset anyone, be polite, uh, quote unquote, that sort of a thing. Don't trust those instincts these days. That's what's being told to uh, us by a lot of different inputs out there. So you have to, these days, really override that and go back to those basics. Go back to that, hey, this just doesn't feel right. Something about this doesn't look right and act on that and choose safety. I'm going to use those words with my kids tonight and I will get back to you on it. And I know you, you, you've said before, you said, I really want all humans to be safer. Is that the foundational principle that drives you in all of these different things, that's, continuing that's, to adapt? Yeah, that's, that's truly the original vision. And this goes back to like 1980. I, 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 was, I was teaching this uh, uh, real estate, one of the biggest real estate guys in Montreal, I was teaching his kids. And he says to me, hey, I took martial arts when I was a kid. He says, you're doing stuff different. Your approach is different. Um, let me help you grow. I'm going to introduce you to a friend of mine who's like a, like a, a venture capitalist. And I'm like, what's venture capitalist? 1980, not a familiar term. Right. He goes, just go to the meeting. <laughs> so I, I'm in a meeting, Jack, and the guy goes, yeah, Ricky says you got the X factor. I go, what's the X factor? He goes, ah, so like you just do things differently, you know. Um, what do you want to do? And without hesitation, I said, I want to make the world safer. I, a lot of people don't realize this. I abhor violence. And I've been around guys like you and, and peers in your, in your circle. And I've had people send me uh, over the years, I'm somewhere, they go, hey, do you want to see this? You want to see this? Like, like, like shit you don't see on CNN and, and mm. Fox. And I've had stuff people sent to me and I've never, ever opened it or watched it. Mm. And they trust me to send it, but they think I'm interested in it. And, and what I think is, is um, important and unique because my, my, what I feel like, like I've been obsessed with since then is understanding how fear afflicts performance, how fear can create uh, doubt and hesitation. And if I don't have the self-awareness to recognize I'm in the fear loop, I'm now procrastinating. And if this is a gunfight or a knife fight, or I'm being chased or something about happening, that's fucking dangerous. You can procrastinate in a lot of things in life. It always sucks because what's the only resource we can't regenerate? Fucking time. Yeah. So it occurred to me that if I understand fear management, I understand time management. Mm. And now I'm being more productive and more efficient in my life. But that was like decades later that I, I, I had that epiphany. Yeah. But back in 1980, this guy says, what do you want to do? I said, I want to make the world safer. And he leans back in his executive chair and puts his arms behind his back. And he goes, oh, and he rocks. He goes, don't you think that's a little grandiose? And I'm like thinking, what an idiot this guy is. Why would that be grandiose? Um, that's been my obsession since then. And I tell the story about not looking at stuff. I don't need to watch somebody getting murdered mm -hmm. or losing a fight 
to understand that I don't want that to happen to me or anyone I teach. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, if you ask me, what's one thing people uh, assume about you, but they'd be wrong or don't know about you, it's that I abhor violence. When I see it in the news initially, I get scared and I get angry. And then I look inward and I go, does my training enhance my survivability here? Mm. Or what do I need to learn so that I could survive a mostly peaceful protest that went mm. sideways or whatever? Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a different, it's almost like doing AARs anytime you see something oh, yeah. new. Oh, absolutely. No, it's important in, in, in life in general, uh, but especially here at this base level, uh, the things that we're talking about. Um, and you, you talk about, we talked about it here. Those who manage their fear, manage the fight. Um, and we, we talked about that, but uh, specific, uh, when, you, when you give like a two or three sentence uh, description of that, uh, what, what are you talking about? And then also when you say, don't confuse technical with tactical and uh, yeah. how do those things uh, kind of go together? Yeah, I dig it. So um, we created a model called the timeline of violence to help people understand that there's more to self-defense than getting at a lapel grab or slipping a punch or getting, getting out of a choke. That that's the physical part. So we have what's called the three Ds, detect and avoid, and a whole program for, for situational awareness and getting off the X, left the bang, all that mm. stuff. Then we have a whole de-escalation program mm all choice speech, understanding uh, kind of uh, the, the science and psychology of getting inside somebody's head and calming them down. Mm. And we've got the whole defend part. Inside there, we've got a block where there's a shift from protective to preemptive. Mm. And so we've really analyzed the neurobiology, the neuroscience. And when you have this, it's almost like, like you're a shooter, but you've never been to an armorer's course. The gun hasn't been demystified to you yet. I always tell people, you go to an armor's course, you're a better shooter when you graduate, even though you haven't fired your round, your gun. But now you've taken the gun apart, you've demystified. I understand how this works. Interesting. And so now when I grab it, I believe that I'm more competent and more confident because I understand how this works. Right. So that's how we teach self-defense is do you understand how your brain works? Do you understand that you could do your 10,000 reps of how to get out of a headlock and you think you're good at it, but what you don't realize is that you did 10,001 reps of letting yourself be put in a headlock mm. so you to practice the escape. Mm. And in that magic insight there, you go, holy fuck, I've done 10,000. This is a, a training gun, a cert pistol. And I'm standing here in front of you and I go, okay, Jack, do, do the disarm. Yeah. Okay, Jack, do the disarm. Okay, Jack, do the disarm. Right. We've done that for 10,000 times and you go ding, 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 and you do the counter. And you're like, John Wick meets Jackie Chan. What we didn't realize is that we've eliminated dissonance and pre-contact cue development by uh, just starting the attack there over right. and over. And so we've eliminated D1, D2, detect and avoid, and diffuse and de-escalate. And, uh, and I had that insight. In fact, that's the, I don't know if we have time to do this, I can do it real quick, but that's what actually happened in, at you know, Coronado, at the Advanced Combat Training Group. One of the SEALs pointed a gun at me, a training gun, and said, do you teach gun disarms and it was 1993 uh before the contract they go do you teach gun disarms in your system and i said yeah we do and he goes would you show one and i said sure and he jams the gun at me but he jams it and he grabs it and he can and he's holding it jack i could see the grip and the tension yeah, in his yeah. he was holding it to not be countered as opposed to how somebody would actually hold a gun mm -hmm. 
So I could tell he was getting ready for me to do something. Right. And so I say to him, I go, listen, everything we do is scenario based. So I need to know, is this a robbery, a kidnapping, or are you planning on, on uh, murdering me? And he smiles at me because I'm really trying to get in his head to distract him. Right. But he's, we're Obi-Wan Kenobi each other. Yeah. Right. I go, he smiles at me. Like, I know what you're trying to do. <laughs> so, you know, the magic of disinformation versus misinformation. I lean into the story more. I go, no, man, I'm serious. Listen, in my system, you, you asked me, and this is all disinformation. I'm trying to fuck with this guy, but he's standing there like this. Mm. And I go, we have different moves for every single situation because force was parallel danger. Am I bullshitting or am I telling the truth? This sounds true. So <laughs> what I would do for a gun disarmament and a robbery is different than if I thought maybe you were going to move me to secondary crime scene and shoot me. So I need you to pick or I can't show you the move. Mm. And he goes like this. He thinks about it and he goes, and as soon as he turned his head to select, right. Boom. I went back and I grabbed the gun and get the hole. The little, this is the most important part of a gun disarms. Everybody listening. Don't be in front of the little hole. Yeah. And I moved the little hole away from me. And as I do that, man, and I'm starting to twist his wrist, like to, to do the, to do the gun disarm. I forget in the moment, cause I'm used to working with students that this guy's a fucking Navy seal and an instructor at the advanced combat training group. He immediately drops down, changing his elevation to take the pressure off his wrist and everything goes into slow motion. I see his fucking hand coming to my nuts. <laughs> yeah. Changing levels. And, right. He changed levels and he's rotating and he's immediately going to strike. And I'm thinking, I don't know this guy. I just met him uh, like, uh, like <laughs> this morning. Is he going to pull it or is he going to crush my testicles? Mm. And so I continue here. And what I do is I grab his arm and I yank it and I pull him. So it rolls him around and I like onto his back and I immediately sit into an arm bar. Now, what's important to the story is it's 1993. A significant event happened for all of us in 1993, and that was yeah, the UFC. UFC. Yeah. And I discovered submission uh, uh, fighting from a buddy of mine uh, in there. And I had been for six months straight, stopped doing everything I did. And all I was doing was ground fighting, jujitsu submission every fucking day. I wanted to understand it because I didn't believe it. Uh, and after the UFC, I was up in a hotel room with my buddy and I went, is that fixed? Is that fake? Cause I've never seen submission. He grabs my ankle, puts me in an ankle lock. And I go, well, I would just sit up here and I went to go punch him in the face. And he goes like this and he bends backwards and I feel my shin bend and I go, oh, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, holy shit. And he goes, and if I do this and he squeezes a bit more and I feel my ankle start to, to twist. And I'm like, okay, yeah. fuck, holy shit. And I made him show me all this stuff. And that's all I did. So when, when I rolled the guy and his arm opened up, I saw the arm bar. I didn't even think about anything. I sat down across him. He immediately got his other hand up. Um, he's holding onto the gun. I kick his arm out. It comes free. I'm in the arm bar. I straighten the arm bar out and I do this. And I was, I was always like headbutt, eye gouge, biting. Mm -hmm. I bring his hand to mouth. I bite his hand. His arm, his, his arm, his hand weakens from the bite. I grab the gun out of his hand with my left hand. I scoot the arm bar. So I've got him in an arm bar and I put the, the gun in his left, in his, in his right ear. He's on the ground. And I do this like as if I practice it 10,000 times, but it was just like improvised nano moment. The other five SEAL instructors are standing there going, holy fuck. I have no idea what I did because I just improvised from the arm bar and did the disarm. 
These guys are like, oh my God, it's the end of the day. They go, hey, can you come back tomorrow? We want to talk to you about training. I'm like, yeah, sure. I leave there and I, 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 I tell people this, I didn't sleep all night, tossing and turning. I was so angry with myself because I had been since 1980, this is 1993, for 13 years doing everything based on the scenario. And there were so many ways I could have taken the gun away from him where I realized in that moment, had this been six against one in a closed room and I was on my back with the gun here, maybe I'd have shot this guy and one other guy, but if they had drawn down on me or started to kick me in the fucking head, there's no way I would have won against six guys. Mm -hmm. And that I, I realized I went into the arm bar without even thinking about it. And it infuriated me. Mm -hmm. And I went back the next morning and I apologized to them and they were, uh, I'm trying to think of a, a way that doesn't sound obnoxious. They were blown away that I would actually, because they were so impressed with what they saw. They were impressed that I would take away that moment to tell the truth, mm -hmm. the integrity of, I shouldn't have done that. When he went down here, I should have stripped the gun out here and drawn down on the five of you. I had his gun. I should have done something more tactical, but I fucking went into the arm bar because all I've been doing is grappling. Mm. And it was in that insight in the moment that they went, we want to train with you for sure now. Mm. And it was there I realized, and it was one of the, one of my most important uh, uh, expressions, be careful what you practice, you might get really good at the wrong thing. Yeah. Be careful what you practice. And what I was talking about was the, 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 the neuroscience of neural patterns, that if you do something too many times, you create a romantic slash dopamine relationship with your favorite move mm. and now you're trying to insert that mm. into the scenario where maybe the scenario here was run away but i was okay to do an arm bar right anyways uh off on a tangent because it, it ties to that those who manage the fear manage uh, those who manage their fear manage to fight and don't confuse uh technical with tactical yeah because uh while the fear wasn't uh, an issue there um I went technical instead right. of tactical. Got it. Right? Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. I like that one. I like that. And you also say, violence doesn't care what martial art you study. Yeah. That was controversial when I first released <laughs> that. Because everyone wants to listen. Everyone wants to believe. Like if, I, if I say to a Taekwondo guy, you just took out some money at a bank, you walk into the ATM, and a guy walks out of the shadows, and uh, he doesn't have a weapon produced, but... Uh, it's strong arm. He goes, give me your fucking wallet. If you're a Taekwondo guy, what are you going to do? Jump spinning hook kick. Well, but, but, no, the, the, but, the, but the Taekwondo guy is going to give you an answer from a Taekwondo menu. Mm -hmm. Right? If you're a jujitsu guy and I go, same scenario. Mm. You're, you're the jujitsu guy is not going to go jump back kick. He's going to go, I'm going to take the guy down and choke him out. If I say to the boxer, what do you do? A guy walks up, he goes, give me your fucking money, man. The boxer's, going to be thinking liver shot, gut shot, uppercut, whatever. But the, the, the boxer's not going to go, am I going to double-leg the guy? We all fall in love with our martial arts. When, when you love Jeet Kune Do, you're always ready to scrape blast. You wake up, whack, you, you know, hit, you hit your Makawara, you're ready to go. Someone grabs you, whack, you're, you're ready to, you know, you're, you're like Bruce Lee, Bob Wall, enter the dragon, let's go, whack, and you're, you're in on it. Um, as as a guy who's like like a neuroscience nerd without studying neuroscience just organically and intuitively when you do something over and over again you create a romantic relationship as i said earlier but you're also creating a neural pattern mm -hmm. 
There's no such thing as muscle memory in the literal sense. And so what ends up happening, that clouds or changes functional or, or, or total full, what I would like to think of as, as, as like a lucid situational awareness, meaning I look at the scenario and I go, what is the safest thing I could do? Not what does Jeet Kune Do say? What does Krav say? What does gunfighting say? And if you look at any incident in the real world and you look at the gun forms, when something happens, that's why I carry. That's why I carry. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. If you look at the knife form, that's why I carry knives. This is what I'd have done. You look at the jiu-jitsu form, this is what I would have done. You look mm-hmm. at the and it, they're 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 again silos, and it's not really cross training. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if you cross train, you can also like like if you cr- let's say you learn like three gun. You go, look at this. I used to just be pistol, but now I got a shotgun. I got an AR. Mm. Oh, now I got a bow and arrow. And now I got a, a crossbow. And now I throw knives. If you're only doing your 10,000 reps like this, and, and you're not thinking, well, what's the scenario? Who would be there? Like, I like doing things where I'll watch somebody, let's say, who does gun disarms. Almost everybody who does gun disarms, gun disarms the same direction with their dominant hand. Mm. And they don't realize that. So what I'll do is I'll watch somebody move and I'll go, no matter what I do, this guy's always hitting with the right hand coming off to the side. So then what I do is I go, okay, stand here. Guys, watch this. And I'll stack a bunch of people behind the guy like this, right? right? And he stands here like this and I point the gun and he goes, wow. And I go, finger on the trigger, semi-automatic, a round's going to go off. You just shot your wife in the head doing the gun disarm. You just shot your partner in the head doing the gun disarm. You just shot a school bus full of kids because you didn't have any situational awareness that says, I need to redirect the gun the opposite direction. I need to go down with the gun because of where that round's going to go. So those are like everything that we add. So a lot of people, you know, don't realize that we're not just teaching how how to use your forearm in a tactical way. We're teaching people how to think. Yep. and how to manage fear. Yep. And we look at scenarios, we go, well, what would we do here? I wrote an article a few months ago after all those robberies started happening in LA. And I said, listen, you guys know I study violence. And what you're talking life. about for people listening is when people were getting followed home, essentially maybe cased a little bit ahead of time, or, but at least followed home. Yeah, and, and also just like sitting at a cafe, uh, like in, uh, in Beverly Hills and three guys walk up with guns, mm. take their watches, take their purses. And it's like broad daylight. You've never seen this stuff ever before, right? And I wrote an article where I said, I know what I could do. I just don't know what I would do. Mm. Because the cavalier combatives expert goes, oh, I would do this and I would do this. And, I, and, that's, and that's the danger that I'm trying to instill in, in the modern mind going, like, just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. Yeah. There's, and, and so this actually comes back to self-awareness and situational awareness. Yeah. But, uh, no, yeah. it, it really does. And you write, uh, our unconscious bias can create more danger for us because it affects our functional situational awareness. You know, yeah. that's, uh, that, that plays right in there. And then it's not about your martial art. It's about our brains, how we learn, how our neuromuscular communication works. So all of this really, I mean, it's a foundation, essentially, I think that you're building um, with people. Uh, it's, it's how to think. That's what I th- yeah. And we don't have taught to think. And also when we talk about thinking, now we're not really taught how to think anymore. Um, when we go back in time, people used to be taught how to think logically. That was really 
what you would learn in school, how to think, um, or from mentors. Um, and uh, we don't really get that anymore. You're spitting out some facts, you're memorizing that sort of a thing, but learning how to think and learning how to think logically and then learning how to apply that to these situations and getting comfortable. I don't know if you get comfortable with violence, but you get, uh, but doing these things that you do here, um, that you would have had to have been good at years ago to survive. Um, it's just kind of like basics, you know, we need to, that's that three eyes, instincts, intuition, intelligence. And if you blend them all, you're probably going to navigate the day effectively. There it is. There it is. Our, our smartphones have made a lot of us dumb. It's so true. It is so true. Uh, uh, and I don't know how comfortable you are talking about, um, I want to talk about family and someone like you, me, kids, spouse, that sort of a thing. When we talk to them about these sorts of topics or things we want them to be aware of, especially maybe for people in the public eye, maybe if you're a target, if you're a family member of someone who's a target or a possible target, um, what do you talk to them about? And then I don't know if, how much, how comfortable you are sharing uh, personal experience um, with you guys on the, on the East coast. But, um, yeah, yeah if, if you're comfortable talking about that or any lessons you learned from it, did it change anything, um, for yeah, you in your training or how you interacted with your family or how you taught families, that sort of a thing? Yeah. So, um, you know, it's funny when, because, because this is all consuming, right? This isn't like my job. And then I come home and, you know, if I get an idea for a drill in, in the middle of dinner, I'm I'm horrible like that. I'm like, oh my God, uh, guys, keep eating and I'll run to my <laughs> uh, just just so you know, like if the inspiration hits me. And it and it's not it's not great because I've again uh I, I do have some guilt uh things that I didn't do as a parent or as a dad because I was consumed, but it wasn't like I was trying to make a buck. It was never about the money. It was, I really felt like I'm trying to make the world safer. And so when you're that uh, uh, obsessed with something, I used to refer to myself as very passionate, but I realized that I'm obsessed with that. I really abhor violence. And if, if suddenly, if, if tomorrow there was like no more crime, no more bad guys, I'd be out of a job. I'd be good with that, mm -hmm. honest to God. And I believe that I'm, I'm resilient enough and motivated enough that I'd figure out a way to pivot and still provide for my family. Uh, and and I, if you know me, you know I'm sincere when I say that. I, uh, but so I've had trouble training my family because they don't want to train because it's all they've ever heard. Mm -hmm. My kids grew up at seminars, like in, in schoolers, you know, nine months old listening to me talking about fear and they'd be on the side with a nanny or my girlfriend at the time or then my wife you know listening to the seminars and then they would hear oh oh you're tony's son oh you're tony like and so they never really got into it but i would make them do training because i go look you you need to understand this mm. and and so uh they're not as trained as i'd like to be but they trust i'm gonna tell you two Stuart now I say all that out of uh, a, a little guilt and defensiveness, but honesty and transparency with you. But let me tell you two stories. Um, I, my daughter comes home from SeaWorld where she was there with uh, her sister and a couple of friends. And she says, uh, yeah, this creep was following us. And I'm like, what creep? What do you mean? What do you, yeah, we were walking 
you know, we're walking back to Redina and I noticed that this guy was following us. So I told everyone, hey, let's go to the girl's bathroom and not lead him to our car so he couldn't see our license or what type of car we were driving. And she's explaining this. She said on the way to the bathroom, he was still following us. So I said, hey, I want to take, let's pretend to take a selfie. And I had them stop and pose for a selfie. And I took a picture of them just in case something happened. We'd have a picture of them. And then we went in the bathroom. We stayed there for 15 minutes. And then we came out and he was gone. And I was like, holy shit. Like, that was amazing. And she's like, you know, 17 years old and, and, and intuited that like, that was like D one D two, like self-awareness and situational awareness, internal de-escalation, stay calm, do these plans, communicate. And I was like blown away with, with it, how they came up with that. It wasn't. So when I'm like, I realized everything they heard and everything they learned had seeped in through osmosis mm. that they were able to do things like that. Yeah. Another another lesson I love sharing. I went to uh, dinner tacos with my wife and my daughter, and to help with the environment, we took three cars there. That's a joke, but we ended up coming from different places. Three cars. It's dusk. We come out of there. I get in my car. I start it. My wife's in her car. My daughter's in her car. I look over and I can see the light, the 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 glow of of their of their. They're both looking at their phones. I stop my car, I sneak out, my wife sees me, and I go, shh, and I walk over to my daughter's car, and I walk like this. I come over to her car, and do are you guys release video or, uh, or yeah. just audio? video. Okay, yeah. So I walk over to her car, and I'm like, <clears throat> and I hammer fist her window, right? And, and she's on her phone, and she's like, she looks up, and she goes, the fuck, and she flinches. And I go, roll down your window right now. Roll down your window. Electric button, modern car. She rolls down the window. And as she's rolling it down six inches, I go, roll down your window, roll down your window. As she rolls it down, I go, I stick my hands in the car and I grab her throat. And she flinches back and I go, roll up your window, roll up your window. And she reaches and she rolls it up and starts to close on my elbows. And I pull my arms out and I go, are you fucking crazy? You almost broke my elbow. And she goes, she goes, what the fuck are you doing? You're the shit out of me. And I look at her, I go, why are you in a dark parking lot on your cell phone? And she goes, what? I go, you're sitting in a parking lot with your cell phone. Do you know, do you know how many attacks happen in transitional spaces like this? She goes, I'm plugging in the GPS to go to my friend's house. I go, do that in the restaurant. And park with your back in, not to either the back out. And did you check your car? I go, what would you do if this had happened? And now your window's closed and you got a guy stuck on your car trying to grab you. What would you do? She goes, what? She goes, dad, you're freaking me out. I said, start your car and drive into another car on your way to a hospital or police department. Siri, drive me to a police station. Tell the guy in loud, assertive voice, Hang on, I'm driving you to a hospital. As you drive into another car, don't worry about the insurance, fucking scrape him against the car. Trust me, he's letting go. She goes, dad, you're freaking me out. I go, are you ever going to get into your car in this fashion again? She goes, no. And I ask people, how many reps do you think I had to do with my daughter for that mm -hmm. lesson at home? Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. 
So I've tried really interesting creative ways like that. Um, you know, we had uh, the, the event you're alluding to a home invasion uh, in 2010, uh, three guys, guns in my house. I had just left the house. They waited for me to leave. They turned around, went back in, uh, rang the doorbell. Uh, I'm not going to get into all the details because it's uh, kind of a long story. But what was amazing, again, if a home invasion can be amazing, is uh, my son, who was upstairs, heard the dogs bark. And they were like like, like uh, purse dogs, like these two, two little fucking gapping dogs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They rang the doorbell. They're barking. My wife moves them out of the way. She looks up. There's a gun in her face. They walk in. They start yelling, where are the kids? Where are the kids? My son hears this. No, something's wrong. He calls 911 right away. Cops are there, like literally in two minutes. We lived in a kind of a nice neighborhood, and this shit doesn't happen there or didn't happen there. Um, my other daughter, who was in the, uh, it was around uh, dinner time on a Friday night, I think, uh, grabs, see, picks up what's happening, grabs her younger sister and runs upstairs and they hide in a closet. The, the guy pointing the gun at my wife says, where's the kids? She goes, I think they're in the garage thinking, okay, there's one guy by the front door. If the garage door is open, that's going to be a, a big escape area. She opens the garage door knowing they're not there. Kids, are you in here? And on the door panel is the, uh, the button for the door. She opens the door. Kids, 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 he's standing here. And she goes, they're not there. And waits till he starts to turn and hits the button to open the garage door, thinking this, this could be an escape route. If they double lock the front door, they won't know about that. Like everyone's fucking started moving. And we never did rehearsals like this. Anyways, the cops come in like two minutes. I'm not home. They hear the sirens and they bolt. And they're all caught, uh, you know, within a few days. Crazy. And this will save for another, either, either over a drink the next time I see you or another podcast. Because it's a crazy story how the last guy was caught. Literally caught by a U.S. Marshal that we taught. And he dropped the guy with the spear, like, off of. And they found a Desert Eagle on him. He was with his gang. It was just fucking insane, uh, all, all, all the stuff, Jack. But um, it, you know, I say it was the best home invasion you could be in because nobody was injured. Emotional, psychological scarring, of course. But, you know, like immediately we got real dogs, not dogs that fit in your purse. Uh, dogs dogs that'll maul people if they come in. Mm -hmm. um, I, I've always been a shooter, but I didn't have guns at the time because mm -hmm. I uh, came from Canada. When I moved to the States, I just left my guns there and I, needed, and I just never got them again. And mm -hmm. now we've got, you know, guns and tomahawks. And we're not paranoid at that, that level. And we've got six dogs now and, and a, a, um, uh, an alarm system by a company out of Utah, actually. Mm. So pretty, pretty high-end alarm. Uh, but shit can happen anywhere, anytime. And it was really just this idea of or what are simple, some simple things you can do and what are you going to do and the idea, like my wife will say, if you talk to her, she goes like, unless, unless you had your gun in your hand when you open the door, you, you, like, you're, like we said before, if she had been carrying or had her gun in her purse or in the kitchen, you open the door, they, the, 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 the ploy to get in 
worked enough. They rang the doorbell. We get, you know, kids all the time ringing the doorbell. These guys were 17, 18 years old. There was a high school nearby. Every week someone came by asking for a donation. There was no reason not to open the door. So, it, you know, it's kind of interesting. But what's yeah. changed is uh, serious dogs, everyone, if you can afford it and, and, and have one, uh, like, like a dog is an amazing deterrent, especially yeah. a trained dog, but, but any dog barking, yeah. um, you know, alarms, weapons, but at the end of the day, you got to be the weapon. No, exactly. you, know, that's the, you got to be, like you said before, uh, you know, the gift of life ultimate at the end of the day is survival and your body is a human weapon system. You get stabbed or hit, there's, there's, there's parts of your system that are going to try to wake you up. There's parts of your, your, your your body that are going to try and coagulate the blood on your own and, and disinfect. And these are things that are happening like unconsciously. Mm. So I made a big distinction between differentiating between what fear does to our physiology and adrenaline and all the neurochemicals and then the psychology. Because at the end of the day, the mind navigates the body. So if you want to survive, while well, your body's already an organism locked and loaded, ready to do stuff, I always tell people, everyone knows how to fight. They just don't know they know how to fight. Mm. It's a natural way uh, to do this. And can you augment it by doing Jeet Kune Do and Jiu Jitsu and Krav and, and finding good instruction? Fuck yeah. You know, mm. you, know you, you can kill somebody with a teaspoon. It's easier with a knife, right? So, mm. um, so there's ways to sharpen your, your skill set, but it all starts to hear. You know this. You've seen it probably, um, and you know it. There are people who are trained exactly the same but they hesitate when the imminent becomes immediate yeah and the only thing that changes there is mindset mm -hmm. oh yeah the physicality the skill set all the trainings have been done on game day the only thing that changes is your ability to manage your fear yeah that mind will always be the most powerful weapon um and on that topic um were there anything that stood out to you looking back on it when you do the AAR uh, on that situation for those three people in particular? Did they, I forget, did they, did they, were they watching you for a while or was it spontaneous? I forgot exactly how it, that it started. Interesting. It's kind of a, a, a creepy, uh, kind of a creepy story. Um, my son thought he recognized one of the guys and told the detective about it. And then what we figured out is he worked on a car wash crew. So I was an executive at a, a company at a partnership down in Virginia Beach, and and the big the mother company uh, had all the executives had their cars washed by this one company, and this guy uh, did it. And they would come to houses to wash the this is the first world problems, of course, the executives' wives' cars. That week there had been three break-ins at homes, so they were scoping houses. Mm -hmm. So they'd already been to my house uh, and. Uh, uh, one of the guys, you know, you know, they're washing it. And you, you're like, you know, oh, yeah, we're the car company that works for this company here. We're here to wash your car. Sorry, man. Uh, do you mind if I use your bathroom? Guy goes in the house. So they came back. Uh, that that was that was the uh, that was the link. That, that Got was it. So it's uh, interesting. So it was. Yeah. Like, uh, oh, yeah. Interesting. I, I've heard of similar scenarios and uh, and. Uh, groups doing that in other other places as well without i heard this uh, a buddy of mine who lived in texas um he uh his travel agent really this was like a what well, this is this is the guy who actually invented remember nike air max yeah 
This is the guy who, like multimillionaire, invented the foam and sold it to Nike. Wow. So if you're that wealthy, are, are you doing stuff yourself on Orbitz and Hotels.com or do you have a travel agent? He had a travel agent. Inside the travel agent, they had a scam going with one of the guys. They book holidays for wealthy people, then tell their buddies and go break into their house because they knew they were gone for this week or this these two weeks. Yeah. Actually, there's so many fucking scams out there. I don't even know who to trust anymore. I know it's crazy. It's crazy. Oh man. Um, but I know, so you have a call coming up. Um, I'd love to have you out here, uh, at some point. And I saw you have Bob, the bully back there, two of them. I got to get one. We had left, left ours in San Diego, uh, when we moved out here. But, um, I think I pushed not working out, not eating right, not sleeping about as far as I possibly can. So, uh, it, anyway, I'm getting, getting back after it and well, get a couple bobs are going to be out here soon. I'm building a little, uh, rack out here, a little Rocky four style going to get uh, right. back on the mitts. Um, and I guess it's about time. It's about time to start doing that, but, uh, it'd be awesome. Uh, next time that you're passing through, uh, going to see Mike Glover, going to see the black rifle guys coming up, maybe say hi, we can grill some steaks. We can yeah, do a little yeah. podcast. We can do a little training out here. But um, we talked a lot about military and law enforcement in the couple minutes here that we have left. Um, what are these programs that you have for everyday citizens? Um, do you have, is it virtual stuff, in-person stuff that people have to come to you? Do you go to them? Do you have trainers out there? What's, uh, what's, the, what, what's the business looking like these days as far as people that want to connect with you and want to learn and want to train? Yeah, appreciate the question. All of the above, actually. So I do, I do a lot of, uh, uh, you know, business talks, uh, there's such an important link between fear management and performance everywhere. So the whole, my research that started off on managing fears turned into a, a separate vertical in the company called No Fear, again, spelled K-N-O-W. So we do that and we do that online, Zoom, virtual, and I, and I travel. I've got trainers all over the world, affiliates all over the world. Our core competency is training trainers in a different way to look at managing violence. So. Like everyone who's part of our, our affiliate team is Krav, Jiu-Jitsu, uh, Jeet Kune Do, everyone. And now what they're doing is they're learning how to use high gear, do scenarios, talk about the fear management, and create what we call the three R's, realistic, relevant, rigorous scenarios to make their students safer. So we're, we're just trying to, again, create more unity with the good guys. I was make a joke, don't hate me, hate the bad guy. The bad guy is the predator on the street. As, as we need to be unified as martial artists and realize you know, just like if I was a knife guy, I'd realize mm, I can't solve every problem with a knife. I should study with some gun guys and learn and learn here. And now I got to study. Oh, wait a minute. This is close quarter. I need to learn a little bit about rifle if I exchange change my range. So so our core business is training trainers in law enforcement, in combatives, in military and martial artists. But we have programs for the general public. Uh, a program, one of my favorite courses called Be Your Own Bodyguard. It's a one-day course. This sounds crazy to martial artists, you know, who've been training for decades going, what's this bullshit, learning how to self learn self-defense in a day? Unconsciously, every martial artist who hears that goes, this must be bullshit. What they're actually thinking is, Tony's saying you could learn martial arts in a day. I'm saying you could learn self-defense in a day. If you learn what bad guys want and what they don't want, you learn the timeline of violence, D1, D2, D3, you can augment and enhance your survivability by spending most of the time in avoidance de-escalation. And if push comes to shove, weaponizing the startle flinch, and we've got like so many uh, success stories from this. And I, I liken this to like 
me learning how to use a shotgun in 15 minutes and you saying, look, stand here, say this through the door. If he comes through the door, you can fire, check with your local authorities what you need to do next, but stand your ground here. This guy's trying to break in your house. I'm not a sniper. I can't shoot at, at a distance. I can't do CQB, but I can learn how to protect my front door with a shotgun pretty quickly. Yeah. I can learn how to use a fire extinguisher in 10 minutes. It doesn't mean I'm a fireman. So I tell people, you can learn the principle of self-defense and the ability to protect yourself in a day. And I've been doing that for 30 years. We started Bureau and Bodyguard back in the 80s. So that's the one, the general public. And I've got a team that does stuff, whether we do stuff for mental health, for, for uh, hospitals, for taxis, for whatever. And we go in there and we do this course. And we tell people, like, if you do a one-day course and you go, man, I just don't feel like I've got enough power. I don't, I, then I go, hey, go to a kickboxing gym, learn how to strike. Oh, you're afraid of the ground? Go to a jiu-jitsu school. People who aren't afraid of the ground are harder to take to the ground. Guess what? You're demystifying parts. Right. So we encourage people to seek more, but a nice foundational course is this be your own bodyguard. Uh, so we've got everything covered. Nice. They can find that on the, on the website. Is that the best way? Yeah. I mean, our, our, our main page, our HQ page is Blauer training systems. My last name, B L A U E R training systems.com. Um, and, uh, that'll take you to like, like if you go, Hey, what's this high gear scenario training? There's a, there's a link there. What's the, all the spear system. What's all the training I can do for self-defense. Uh, and then my coaching and then our no fear program. It's all there. Nice. Nice. I love it. Awesome, man. Well, Hey, I'm gonna let you get to your call and, uh, and hopefully I'll see you out here one day pretty soon. And, yeah. uh, man, thanks so much for uh, all the support. Uh, I gotta tell you, it means so much to me. Um, and, uh, yeah, thanks for all you do for all of us. Dude, thank you for your service. And, and thank you. I know you retired a long time, but I, I always, it's a ritual of mine. I'm always in awe of the courage and bravery and, and I'm always, grateful when I can connect uh, with people serving or retired uh, and, and everything you do. I mean, Terminal List and that movement and all the books and, and uh, uh, the, uh, you know, like, like even your posts online, like I was like, you know, reading that the Chechen attack this morning and I'm like, every day, Jack Carr will inspire or educate you. So thank you for everything you do, buddy. Oh, appreciate that. Appreciate that. You guys take care and I'll see you soon. Okay, be safe, man. I'll see you, you soon. You too. Take care. November 11th is Veterans Day, but at Navy Federal Credit Union, every day is Veterans Day. I've been a member since 1996, right after boot camp and right before I went to BUDS or SEAL training. Navy Federal Credit Union is for active duty veteran DOD employees and their families. They offer resources like the VA Loans Hub and Best Cities After Service. They offer veteran employment assistance partnerships with nonprofits like The Mission Continues. They're a top VA home loan lender. They offer personal finance counseling. They offer 24-7 member service and are a growing community of over 1.8 million veterans just like you. Learn more at NavyFederal.org veterans. Insured by NCUA, an equal housing lender. Thank you so much to Six Hour for jumping right on board out of the gate to make this podcast possible. Obviously, I am a huge SIG fan, having carried the P226 on every deployment downrange in the SEAL teams. Uh, but 
Sig was a supporter. They were friends well before uh, I was a New York Times bestselling author, uh, well before I even had an Instagram account or any social media presence whatsoever. So thank you guys all so much. Uh, Ron, Tom, Jason, everybody at SIG who gets up every day and continues to crush it and lead the way. SIG is always adapting. They're always at the forefront, whether it is firearms for citizens, whether it's firearms for our military, ammo, suppressors, optics, training, fire control units. They are doing it all, and they are always pushing pushing that envelope and trying to do it better each and every day through innovation and adaptation. They crush. So thank you so much for that friendship and support. Uh, It will never be forgotten. All right, let's talk about 10,000.cc. So 10,000, awesome company. If you have tried their interval shorts or their tactical shorts, which these are right here, you know that you are not going back to anything else. These things are awesome. And uh, I got a pair of pants from them recently too. And man, amazing. Amazing. Um, I've worn a lot of shorts over the years, obviously being a West Coast SEAL at Team 5 when I started out. So that was kind of the the thing. Um, But I have worn a lot of shorts and these ones hands down the best. I mean, that's just how it goes. Uh, They were tested by over 50 special operations members in their testing phase. So it makes sense that they're awesome, but, uh, definitely try these out. Go to 10,000.cc, uh, follow them on Instagram. Same thing. 10,000.cc on Instagram. Uh, but go to the website, check it out. Super easy to order. Uh, there's not crazy amount of different options. So, uh, and then there's packages on there as well. I mean, they just do a fantastic job in all that they do. Free shipping, free returns, uh, go to 10,000 dot cc slash danger close for 15% off your order. You will not regret it. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the danger close podcast. First off 30 seconds out. That's the shirt that I'm wearing right here. Uh, veteran owned and operated former seal. Uh, you can go and check them out 30 seconds out Dot com, all sorts of great stickers, t-shirts, uh, and some great sayings on there. No one is coming. It's up to us expect to self-rescue all sorts of great stuff on there so check them out and what is this bam look at this pack right here so this is the gunslinger 2 from eberly stock and you will have seen chris pratt wearing this in episode four beginning of episode four of the terminal list and glenn eberly of course has been on the podcast before awesome guy olympian veteran pilot, uh, and started Everly Stock Company. So this is the Gunslinger 2 right here. Fits your rifle up here. You can check out episode four of The Terminalist for a little more on that. But bam, right there. Love their stuff. And Glenn's just an awesome dude as well. Um, All right, this helmet. What's this helmet doing here? Got a little retro helmet for the bike. Figured I needed to to start building my quiver of helmets and always wanted one that was a little more retro. And uh, these guys are, I'm going to spell it out, Equilibrist, I think it's called. E-Q-U-I-L-I-B-R-I-A-L-I-S-T dot com. They have a bunch of retro helmets on their site. And uh, this one's pretty, pretty sick. So, bam, cool. Thank you, guys. 
And what else? Look at this. Stephen Pressfield, author of Gates of Fire, Legend of Bagger Vance, Afghan Campaign. Uh, if you followed my reading lists on the blog of my website at officialjackcar.com, you'll know that I talk about Stephen Pressfield quite a bit. He has been on the podcast a few times, and he has a series of books on creativity. Started with uh, The War of Art, there's Turning Pro, there's Do the Work, The Authentic Swing, and this is his latest, Put Your Ass Where Your Heart wants to be. And uh, he even has a chapter on me in here. And he didn't tell me that he was going to do that. So I was reading this when it arrived and got to it and was pleasantly surprised. It was pretty cool to, uh, to read it. So uh, Stephen, thank you so much. Sincerely appreciate it. Anybody in the creative space or uh, interested in leadership, anything like that, should check out all of Stephen Pressfield's books on creativity and you can read them fairly quickly as well as you can tell they're not that uh not that thick so definitely get them well worth it and if you haven't read gates of fire i think you're probably the only one left so be sure and check that out as well all right so this right here this print amazing um this comes from nick uh palomasano and he is with diesel jack media founder and directed send me and uh, this print right here is from Afghanistan a year ago, August. And he wrote me this amazing letter, but I'm just going to read one little part of it right here that talks about this painting from Invader Girl. And you can follow her. I think it's underscore Invader Girl underscore on Instagram. And it's invadergirlart.com. But uh, amazing artist right here. And uh, he commissioned Invader Girl to do 25 of these. This is number... 13, oh, 13 of 20, but uh, in here he writes, uh, the painting was inspired by a moment when I was halfway through loading a plane and I looked up and saw two of our team members getting geared up to go outside the wire. In the background was one of our C-17s. It was a powerful moment in time, and I believe the artist crushed it. And I agree. So, uh, Nick, thank you so much for this. Invader Girl, thank you so much for capturing this. Uh, I've been following uh, her artwork for, for a long time, and to have this is pretty special. So this is going to go into place of honor. Uh, thank you. And speaking of Send Me, uh, right over here, Send Me. It's available right now on Amazon, or you can go to sendmemovie.com. I'm an executive producer on it. These guys did all the work. All the, if there are any proceeds, all those proceeds go to the Save Our Allies mission. So you can check it out. Go to Amazon Prime. Uh, it's an hour-long documentary. It's well worth it. It is powerful, and it is emotional. So uh, check that out. Sendmemovie.com. Go to Amazon Prime. Check it out. All right. I think that's it. Till the next time, take care out there. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast. An Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. To find out more about Tony Blauer, go to his website, blauertrainingsystems.com, and that is B-L-A-U-E-R. You can link to everything he has going on from there and to his social channels. You can follow me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels. You can go to officialjackcar.com. That is the website. You can sign up for the newsletter there and click on shop for the merch. And if you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, take care out there. Stay safe, be strong, keep fighting.
I want to thank my friends at Black Rifle Coffee for sponsoring the Danger Close podcast. I've been a huge fan for the longest time. Drink Black Rifle Coffee every day. And if you keep your eyes peeled, you will notice that perhaps Chris Pratt is wearing a Black Rifle Coffee t-shirt, not unsimilar to this one, in the Amazon series adaptation of The Terminal List. Now you can go to blackriflecoffee.com slash dangerclose and use code dangerclose 20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. Black Rifle Coffee, America's Coffee, keep crushing. Hey everyone, it's Jack Carr here. Just in time for the holidays, I am launching a new collaboration with my friends at KC Cattle Company. KC is a veteran-owned company out of Missouri, and they raise some of the best beef in the country. This limited release collaboration will include two different steak bundle options. One bundle is geared toward the entire family and includes KC Cattle Company's award-winning Wagyu uncured beef hot dogs. And a second bundle option, my favorite, will include something special, a massive Wagyu tomahawk steak and a cross tomahawks branding iron. Awesome. These limited release bundles drop in late November. So be on the lookout for more release information soon, exclusively through the officialjackcar.com shop. Be the first to find out about my latest collaborations and more by signing up for the Jack Car newsletter at officialjackcar.com.